Welcome once again, wrestling fans. This is Seth, a.k.a. Zandrax, the mayor of Geekville. And we are doing something new for this edition of Classic Wrestling Memories. We have done shows before about pay-per-views and special edition programming in the past, but this is going to be our first themed edition of Classic Wrestling Memories because, as we've said before in our Geekville Radio Sampler, this is going to be a Halloween-themed month because it is October. It is the month of Halloween, the season of the witch, whatever you want to call it. So we are focusing our attention on this edition of Classic Wrestling Memories on the, you might call it classic, you might call it infamous. I personally sum it up as a a perfect example of the good and bad of WCW at the time. We are going to be talking 1991 Halloween Havoc, which had some really good wrestling and a really terrible opening match. And fortunately, once again, I don't have to do it alone. Joining me once again from a nice soft padded cell in South Kakalaki, my usual co-host for Classic Wrestling Memories, Crazy Train Jonathan Bullock. All aboard, wrestling fans, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, this is going to be the first time, like Seth said, that we are actually including Classic Wrestling Memories as our part of our month of October Halloween scare fest on the Geekville Radio Podcast Network. I suggested it, and Seth was like, wow, that's not a bad idea. Now, if we keep doing this every year, I think there was only, what, about 11 or 12 Halloween Havocs for WCW went defunct. So we've at least got one for every year for the next 10 or so years. (laughs) Then we'll have to figure something else out. Because I think the one the previous year, 1990, was the the bit with Barry Windham as the imposter sting, which I I still say was a great – it aged poorly because of, obviously, how different – Barry Windham and Sting looked, but that, yes. that was the type of thing you did that well enough, and that's a hell of a tease finish, so to speak, sure. if you get what I, the, yeah, Sting right. still came back and won, but I thought it was a great idea at the time. Right, and of course, the inaugural Halloween Havoc was the year before that, in 1989, which should have been right after Turner had bought out the company, Jim Crockett Promotions, and and rebranded it as World Championship Wrestling. And I've heard many people say that we're in the company including Tony Schiavone, who is an announcer on this card and was always big behind the scenes with the company. In a lot of ways, this was seen as like the number two or number three pay-per-view that the company had annually. Starcade, of course, was their number one. That was their WrestleMania. And I would say probably this and Great American Bash were their other two. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. I would, I would say Bash was probably number two and then maybe Halloween Havoc being number three. Right, well, would be, to, to make a modern-day comparison, it would be the same as, say, oh, WrestleMania, SummerSlam, Survivor Series. Right, right. Or not Survivor maybe, Series. Maybe I, Royal I, Rumble I, I in there somewhere. Royal Rumble, yeah, 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 Royal Rumble. I would say it's probably a little bigger than Survivor Series. Oddly enough, we've talked at length about how holidays, especially in the old territory days, were big drawing days for wrestling promotion, especially Thanksgiving, Christmas, and the 4th of July weekend even sometimes on like Labor Day and Memorial Day. Halloween, for whatever reason, had kind of been left alone. I've always thought maybe because promoters thought, well, we're not going to get fans to come in that night. They're going to have their kids out trick-or-treating. Well, if you're going to do that on Halloween night, yeah. But but I would think a Halloween-themed wrestling event, everybody can come dressed up and all, and all that. It just mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah, and I, and I think that Halloween, much like Christmas, is just a holiday where the entire month is kind of dedicated to the, the season. And so, like you said, you don't have to have the show directly on Halloween. And it, with Halloween being a secular and non-national holiday, 
it's a holiday, but it's not a holiday where you, anybody gets off work unless they take the day off. It's not like Christmas or Fourth of July where like almost everybody's everybody who has uh, a job outside of like the service or medical industry probably has it off anyways. Or tech know, support. So. I know from experience. Right. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. But well, notice we named both the fields you work in medical and tech supporter that have to work on holidays, but I digress. I, I, you think I would get away from that when I got out of wrestling? Nope. <laughs> nope. So Halloween Havoc 1991, it fell, of course, on a Sunday because Sunday tended to be pay-per-view days. This was on October 27th, 1991. It was from the UTC Arena in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And I do remember some of the buildup. I know you're going to get into it in a moment there, Train, because this really was not when I was watching WCW regularly. As, I, as I've said before, and I'll, I'll be brief because I've said this many times on this on the show, Great American Bash 1992. That's when I was like, okay, I am a WCW fan now with that Sting. So you're Vader looking stuff. about eight, eight months after this. Right, right. And and I was watching it, but I was more of a WWF at the time, WWE fan. Because sure. I'm, I'm 15, 16 years old. This is really about the time you kind of start outgrowing the stuff you watched as a kid and you start getting into more mature stuff. So I think it's, it's easy to see why I kind of went into the more serious in-ring stuff. That, that right. WCW had, but I do remember some of the commercials for this. I'll, I'll link the commercials in the show notes because Elvira was actually doing commercials for Halloween Havoc, which makes sense because I'm pretty sure she was working for Turner at the time. I think she was. I think this is when she was still doing the the late night horror stuff, right, or Saturday morning or something I, like that. Yeah, probably. I mean, I, we, we when we spoke on our nostalgia trip, I know uh, that we dropped last week that at some point in this time, or maybe it's a little later, Al, Al Lewis, grandpa from the Munsters did it. Mm-hmm. Joe Bob Briggs, they kind of had a nice little run on Turner's broadcast networks of horror hosts doing that kind of stuff. So you got one of those types under contract, go ahead. And that was always one of the reasons why I think most uh, insiders in the business really thought WCW had a chance to succeed and succeed at a big level was because of the synergy and the built-in uh, ability to market because there was there was a tie into this huge international cable network that Vince didn't have. He had to, he had to you know essentially buy or sell that to another company, whereas Ted already owned one. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll get into that in a moment with uh, one of the gimmicks of a certain future Hall of Famer, shall we say? I'll just leave that right. that, that that tease at that. Right. Okay. Well, you said you, you you don't remember the build up to this, mm-hmm. and you were how old? About fifteen when this happened, probably. Yeah, yeah. I think it was fifteen, sixteen. The the main thing I remember is this was shortly after Ron Simmons' babyface turn because Ron Simmons right. and Butch Reed were were doom under who who was the manager? Woman. Uh, Ted, Teddy, woman. Ted, no, I think it was Teddy Long. Well, it started out as woman, then it became Teddy Long. Okay. You're correct. Okay. Yeah. Because okay. because yeah, I, I think this would have been about the time woman would have left with Kevin Sullivan to be in one of the. That, ECW probably at that point. Yeah, Early ECW? yeah, yeah. About about that time. I, this is all going from memory, ladies and gentlemen. Almost thirty years without any without any research as far as ter- other promotions at the time. So so my apologies. Right. But anyway, but I do remember Ron Simmons' babyface turn, and he broke away from Butch Reed. And the main reason I remember it is because my last name is Zillman, and my father's name is Ronald. So. I remember watching and Gary Michael Capetta saying, the All-American Ron Simmons. And my dad thought he, he heard Ron Zillman. So my dad like does a double take. <laughs> <laughs> so so oh, that's, wow. that's probably the main thing I, I remember this. But the main thing I remember 
in that was the press conference with Luger and, and Ron Simmons. Uh, and that that's really the main thing I remember. I really don't remember too much as far as any undercard build or anything like that. I remember the Van Hammer music videos and crap like that, but I guess we'll get to that mm-hmm. as we go. Yeah, this is you have to, once again, this is only a couple years after Turner has bought out Jim Crockett Promotions, made his made even a bigger push than Crockett did to go national and compete head-to-head with Vince. And I think everyone is in agreement, fans and insiders alike, that this was a very odd time, to, and I'm being very kind by saying that, for the company. <laughs> some of the booking and some of the talent they have was incredible. Some of it was questionable at best. Right, right. Um, there, there actually is some very good wrestling on this show. That's sure. that's one of the the thing. It's what when I say it was the good and the bad of WCW at once. And I think I remember because at just the time this this show came out, I was like twenty twenty one, and I was actually living in Utah, serving a mission for my church. And Utah is just one of those areas that was not really a part of any territory and did not have a historical tie territory wise to any wrestling. It wasn't like you in Chicago where there was a, a strong Crockett influence for years in AWA. It wasn't like me where I lived and grew up where there was this strong presence of Crockett promotions and championship wrestling f- from Georgia and, and, and championship wrestling from Florida. Or sorry, Georgia championship wrestling and championship wrestling from Florida. Uh, even when I was younger in Denver, there was AWA ran Denver all the time. So there was an AWA. that were, just didn't have that in you. And I was still in that mindset as a fan that that was my wrestling because it had a direct lineage to Crockett Promotions and Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling and Georgia Championship Wrestling. So it was still being at this time, Dusty had come back from the WWF. He was booking again. So it had a little bit of the feel, the booking I was used to, and I was a staunch defender of it. I hadn't quite began to understand that in-ring product does not sell at the same level spectacle. And that is one of the reasons why Vince probably was doing better. We can all agree Hogan was not nearly the wrestler that Ric Flair was, right? But Hogan was better at the spectacle than Flair. right. So right. Hogan was a better superhero than Flair right, was, right. and he, even if right. you want to say Flair would have been a villain, it's it Flair you totally bought as he would have been like that in real life. Like if if you were to see Ric Flair in real life, he'd probably still woo and all that because well because he, he kind of he, do, he, he does. <laughs> I'm, I'm speaking from firsthand experience because he does. Okay. But uh, this is also at the same time, this, this time in 1991 is right after Flair has left the company. Who's been essentially your, your, your top guy for the last, what, 10, 12 years. He's mm-hmm. gone and gone up North to work for Vince. So it's just a real, real strange time for the company. And I remember going to the house of some people who went to, who were members of our church. They invited me and, and, and the other missionaries over in the area. And there was a clash of champions, I want to say, maybe about a month or maybe three weeks leading up to this that I remember vividly that was essentially the go-home show for this particular pay-per-view. This is before Nitro. And I don't even think Raw had started at this point, had it? No, no. Raw started in 93. As a matter of fact, to give you an idea of what we're talking about, I think it would have been a month later at Survivor Series 91 around Thanksgiving when Undertaker made his debut in, in WWF, um, wasn't it? Was it, th- was, was it, was it 90 90. or 91? I think it was 90, okay. yeah. So maybe he had been there for a year. Yeah, so, because, I mean, uh, you just triggered a memory here. This, this, this We didn't talk uh-huh. about this beforehand, but and I don't know if this is true or not because this is before I was reading the dirt sheets, of course, but I, I remember 
this rumor going around that in late 90, early 91, whenever it was when Sid left WCW for, for WWE, that Sid was going to be a tag team with Taker and he was going to be called the Mortician, which thankfully didn't happen because you don't need more than one Undertaker. So you're going to have the guy who replaced Sid in the skyscrapers, in the skyscrapers. of WCW <laughs> yeah. tagging with him in WWF. Yeah. Yeah, Sid, Sid could have never pulled that gimmick. No, no. You you need Sid as being the grumbling, sweaty, veins pulsing, and butchering right. the English language. That, that's how I like my Sid. Yeah, right. I don't want my Sid any other way. But I, I think if you look at, you take into consideration everything things we just mentioned in the last five minutes or so, there was a lot going on. You still had, because not just, it wasn't just the fan base, the hardcore fan base like myself, there were still a lot of people in the company talent and behind the scenes who still believed in this we have to put on a better in-ring product because that's what separates i think jim ross was one of them quite frankly sure and i think dusty was to a certain level dusty did believe in the in the big spectacle we've talked about that at length before dusty was always a guy who saw the big picture so you had that but then you also had the corporate people that were the turner people like kip fry i believe was i think this is the kip fryer i think this was right after jim hurd got 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 canned and of course, you know, Jim Hurd was the was the main reason Flair left. So right, right. I think Hurd is credited still, but who knows? It, this, you, but it's right about that time. That time, yeah, it's, it's in that time that Hurd's either just left or he's on his way out soon. That's where we're at in the in the history of the company. So there was still those corporate people who wanted the spectacle, and I think that's why you see such a mismatch of the of the types of matches, including the infamous opening match. We'll get to in a little bit. I think that was an example of spectacle that was an attempt to be related to the theme of the of the Halloween thing. But I think in an attempt to to show diversity and and better in-ring product, at this time WCW had much better relationships with other major promotions in other countries right. than WWF did. And so you would see a lot of New Japan people, top stars on big shows. They had good dealings with AAA. And then part of that was this idea of creating a light heavyweight division, which would morph years later into the cruiserweight division. Right. And I think everybody agrees, insiders and fans, that was one of the strong points during the Monday Night War era of, yes. of WCW was they were hands down, handled the lighter guys way better than Vince. And, and Vince being a big muscle guy, that shouldn't be a shocker to anybody. Right. If you, uh, if you saw smaller guys in WWE, they were usually as a tag team. You know, right, Rockers right. as an example. Midnight, Midnight Express, Rock and Roll Express, stuff like that, yeah. And so this was – I also, because I know Jim Ross had a lot of stroke behind the scenes at the time, you must remember Jim Ross grew up, cut his teeth, and got into the business in the old Leroy McGurk, then Bill Watts, Mid-South Territory, which was always built around the time that, that Jim Ross was a kid, around Danny Hodge, who mm-hmm. I've said before, mm-hmm. I think pound for pound might be the toughest guy ever in the history of the wrestling business. Yeah, and, and he was. A, he I'm not boasting heavy, like, here. I'm not trying to boast here, but I'm just saying it. Just, just saying it for perspective. I think I'm bigger than Danny Hodge. I'm. You are. I, I'm six one and about two twenty. <laughs> so. And Danny's like ninety something years old. He'd still whoop your ass. I hope you understand yes, absolutely. that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the guy is just a freak of nature. Okay, and and I am. I, I I'm not saying by any stretch of the imagination that I was taught anything by Danny Hodge, but I know that my mentor Susan Green 
was taught some shoot stuff by Danny the first time she came back from Japan and got that bucket busted over the back of her head. And Danny's like, well, that ain't going to happen again, sweetheart. So, <laughs> so he taught her some stuff. And I'd like to think some of the things she showed me, she probably learned from Danny Hodge. So in an indirect way, I consider Danny Hodge part of my wrestling lineage, my personal wrestling lineage. So I take it for what it's worth when I say he was the toughest guy, pound for pound. But I would, I would doubt you would find many who would argue that with. Me. Yes, we all know Haku's a badass. We all know these other guys are badasses, Paul Orndorff and guys that that nature but pound for pound you're not gonna get much tougher than danny hodge but anyway right. with him being a smaller guy and being the focal point of the territory i i think in ross probably had a little bit of say so they created this tournament and i remember the the semi the finals of the tournament are going to be in the, on this show but the build-up led to the two semifinal matches being on that clash of champions i mentioned earlier and they both were incredibly good matches one was ricky excuse me richard morton against Mike Graham. And the only problem with that match is Ricky Morton was trying to be a heel. Right. At at the same time, another change going on at this point in WCW was the formation of the York Foundation, which, of course, was Marlena, Alexandra York, who, for right. those who don't know, Terry... Uh, Terry oh, right, Runnels, be, uh, yeah. Yes, soon, soon to be Runnels, when she married Dustin, Dustin Rhodes. Uh, had been a makeup artist for CNN and was just one of the makeup girls that early on when Turner bought it out was said, Hey, we need, we've got these announcers, these wrestlers down here are going to be on television. We need you to come in here and do, and do some makeup for us. She did. She was young. She was attractive. She was, these are good looking guys who were single. You can kind mm-hmm. of imagine what happened. Yeah. It's, it's not mm-hmm. hard to figure out. It's, it's called mother nature, ladies and gentlemen. Right. right. <laughs> and, and eventually she wound up, she wound up with Dustin. I can't remember. I was around this time. I think you're right. Yeah. Uh, Cause I think Dustin and, uh, was, I think in two years or so he was gold dust in WWE. I, I want to say, right. He was. And if you remember the early days of the York foundation, let first let me explain with you. Your foundation was, was she was supposed to be Alexander Terry, Alexandria York, the epitome of, a, of, of like, I think she was almost supposed to be like a female Sam Gecko from Wall Street. Isn't that how you kind of right, interpret her? Right, right. I, I, and it's one of the things I had written down is that in the year of our Lord, 1991, WCW had a woman as the head of a stable, which right. I, I don't think you even see that now. There, 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 there are villainous female managers and, and of course, babyface female managers. But th- this was a woman who was heading up a stable. And right. I think that's and, pretty unique for its time. Right. And, and I, Terry had, in my opinion, not had to, did not, had not developed the persona or the working ability to pull this off yet, but she was learning. Right, right. right. She was, she, she was learning and, and she was meant to be the mouthpiece and, and the focal point, I'm sure Dustin had something to do with this because of their relationship behind the scenes. Dustin was the initial baby face. That was the, the focal point of this heel faction. And her, the thing of the York foundation was taking taking guys who were not great on promos, but old school white meat baby faces mm-hmm. and turning them heel and calling and, 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 and making them sound more corporate and more modern. And those right. included Terry Taylor, who they changed the name to Terrence Taylor, the computerized man of the 1990s, also playing into how computers are becoming more and more important in business at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thomas Taylor from Tommy T- our Tom, our Tom, our Tommy, uh, Tom, Tom, Thomas Rich, Thomas Rich, Thomas Rich, yeah, Tommy Rich, yeah, yeah, instead of being hot, wildfire, Tommy Rich and Ricky Morton into Richard Morton. When this predates 
what happened there, and we've talked about it in other podcasts or uh, episodes in the past, Robert Gibson legitimately hurt his knee and was on the shelf for about a year. He didn't even want to quit. I think it was Ron Simmons or Butch Reed, one of them. One of the guys from Doom said, you've given enough to this business. We're corporate now. Take your time off. Get your mm-hmm. knee healed up. They didn't really have anything for Ricky to do without because the Rock and Roll Express, and let's be honest, the Rock and Roll Express with the rise of Doom and, and the Steiners and the Skyscrapers, the Rock and Roll Express were right on the cusp of becoming a nostalgia act. They weren't what they had been just six years right, earlier. Right, right. These would have been guys in their late 30s, you know, maybe, right, right. maybe early 40s. So they, they turned R- R- Ricky heel and called him Richard Morton. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it worked. And I'm not saying that because of my personal friendship with Punky. I just, Ricky just, who wants to boo Ricky Morton? Exactly. <laughs> you know? He is you know, such a but, natural baby face. And one other thing about mm-hmm. the, the York Foundation, I'll let you continue. It's like the whole gimmick was that Alexander York was this master computer programmer that factored in the strengths and weaknesses of opponents. And it's right out of 80s, early 90s comics and sci-fi. And <laughs> the, let's know, be this, honest, it would get over with the modern smart marks today because they're... Right. They all got excited about the statistics, what AEW yeah. was going to focus on. And right. as Jim Cornette has pointed out, whether you agree with Jim Cornette or not, as Jim Ross talks about all the time, the way guys get over is by winning. And when somebody wins, somebody mm-hmm. has to lose. So right. as much as I appreciate what the fans are saying there, they don't understand. If they were to see true shoot statistics, they'd realize one of their favorite guys had less than a 500% or five, a winning. They would be even at best, 50-50 right. on their yeah. win-loss. Right, and right. and that's just not how wrestling works, ladies and gentlemen. It's the perception in the fans' eyes of whether a guy can win or not, not whether he actually has or hasn't. Right. But for and, a guy to get over, you do have to let him go on a winning streak. Right, right. And regarding the computer thing, this is 1991. This is before laptops were a thing. And the mm-hmm. computer she would bring out was like the size of a, of a suitcase, and I'm pretty sure it would have had like the screen of a Game Boy. Not the Game Boy Advance right, right. that... that, that, that remember from the the early 2000s it's like that ugly green with like the dark gray and it's it's just that's the type of stuff i just remember from that time it was like glorified apple II. right i remember there was even a gimmick when she first started the york foundation the only member was terry taylor they would they would when they do a thing where they would they would the computer would tell them he was going to win by such and such at such and such a time and they down to the second right right well i think what happened was first off in the york foundation was Mike Rotunda. I think they called him right. Uh, right. Mike, Michael Wall Street or something like that. Right. And then he, yeah. And I, then he left and became IRS. Exactly. WWF. Yes. You're correct. You're yeah, correct. Because I'm smart enough to remember seeing IRS. I'm like, wait a minute, that's Michael Wall Street. And that's before I knew he was Mike Rotunda. I think I had to watch earlier NWA stuff before I figured that out. Yeah. And for, and for, our, for our new listeners that don't know old time wrestling, we're talking about the guy who's the father of Bo Dallas and Bray Wyatt. But I digress. <laughs> Who just happens to be married to the sister of Barry and Kendall Wyndham. And we'll talk about Barry later. So right. there's definitely a lot of wrestling genes here. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I think you're, you're correct. And, it's, and, and I remember, of course, with her being a nefarious heel manager, you can imagine how often the computer got involved in finishes. Right, right, exactly. It's, 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 it's like Cornette's tennis racket. It's like Heyman's telephone in this era. It's like Freddie Blassie's cane. If you're a heel... And you're a manager and you've got one of these gimmicks to not use it and finishes is just stupid. Let's be honest. Right. And, you're, and you're, like you're, I said, the, the, the computer is the side of a briefcase. The, the computer right. that, uh, I, well, if I were to mix this on my laptop, I'm pretty sure if I were to hit you with my laptop, you'd say, what was that? 
Right. <laughs> right. But I remember I remember the match being from that clash being Mike Graham, who was one of Dusty's guys. Of course, he was the son of the legendary promoter in Florida, Eddie Graham. And Mike was one of those guys that I think just did not survive the death of the territory. Extremely talented in-ring guy, legit tough guy, legitimate amateur background, but was small, did not cut a great promo, but worked in Florida because everybody because everybody knew he was Eddie Graham's son, and everybody knew his legitimate high school and amateur background. Did not translate to a national stage, but was a was a good opponent. And he was getting older at this point. He was probably in his right. late 30s, early 40s. Yeah, you yeah. Know. I, I'm pretty sure I remember seeing gray chest hair on him. And that's not yes. a good look when you're trying to be a badass. And you're, and you're trying to be a baby face against a younger-looking guy like Ricky Moore. Right. But it was, it, was, it was a really good match. One of my favorite spots that was used in this match that a lot of guys won't do because they don't trust it. I like to do it where it's it, it, you grapevine the leg out of a drop toe hold and then drop backwards. And if the guy does not have to take it, you will dislocate his knee. <laughs> but I remember Ricky Morton doing it to doing it to Mike Graham and it looked incredible. And of course, Ricky, I think cheated if I remember right, like 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 slammed him into the into the post to to get the get the roll up victory. And then the other match that was another semifinal match was Brian Pillman, who it was very obvious going into the tournament was was the guy they were they were grooming to be the the, the champion because yeah. Brian Pillman at this point was probably I, I don't know if he was the number two babyface, but he was probably the number three babyface in the company, wouldn't you say? Oh, ab- absolutely. You had Sting. He, he had was the number- counter where the guy would come off the top rope with a double axe handle, and Brian would counter with a drop kick, which was unheard of at the time. Right. Now they do it all the time, but right, it, it, right. Brian was doing but that Bri- in the in like 1990. Right, and Brian here was this guy who was an incredibly athletic and 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 had look, good looking guy. Great body, had the legit amateur background from college football and playing with the Bengals in the NFL. The only thing he couldn't do was really, he could a good promo, it was just hard to understand because he had that raspy voice. Exactly, you know, which because was of, not he his the, fault. But you know. Right, he had the throat surgeries when he was a child from some kind of polyps or something, I can't remember. But he was very much over, it was very obvious, and they had a much more traditional babyface versus heel match and his match against Bad Street who was a masked wrestler who was part of the Freebirds at the time. Brad it Armstrong, was, if I recall correctly. It was Brad Armstrong Underhood. That's exactly correct. And I don't think anybody needs to, who, who listens to this, needs to be explained how good Brad Armstrong was inside the ring. He was incredible. So once again, another super talented two guys in a great match leading up to the, in the lead up to this, this, this Halloween Havoc. Actually, Bradstreet has started out as Fantasia. Because if you go back to the days of the, the Freebirds becoming a big thing nationally in the early 80s in Dallas and world class, that was just a little thing that Michael Hayes would always throw in his promos. He would talk about Freebird Fantasia. Well, that didn't matter in 1982 in Dallas. But fast forward to the early 90s in a now corporate-owned, Ted Turner-owned company, and Disney's going to get wind of that, and they already own this copyright to Fantasia from the great 1950s animated movie so i think they if i remember right they either did they either did sue or threaten a lawsuit so they had to change it and they just changed it to bad street right Right. and that's the thing about brad armstrong because it's like somehow you put brad armstrong under a mask and you get lawsuits because brad armstrong was also arachna man uh, a couple who got sued by marvel (laughs) (laughs) exactly and yes arachna man he looked like spider-man the colors were different he was i think yellow and purple the wcw colors but it was clearly a rip off of spider-man and marvel threatened a lawsuit there so yeah 
Yeah, it, and, and and the the Freebirds were also in a very weird place at this point. They had come in. I'm pretty sure Michael Hayes had some stroke back backstage because he has a great mind for the business. But he, they had been heels, and then they had turned. They had kind of semi turned them babyface because the fans were starting. They're starting to get over the fans, and they were trying to reestablish them as heels. So for a while, they had Sir Oliver Humperdinck as their manager. I think which he was, was called like, Big Daddy you- Dink. Yeah. Yeah, and why? As much as I love and, and respect Sir Oliver Tumperdink and God rest in peace, brother. Once again, one of Dusty's guys from Florida. Why does Michael Hayes and Jimmy Garvin need a mouthpiece? Exactly. Come on, those are two of the greatest talkers of their era. They don't need a mouthpiece. <laughs> uh, but anyway, that was that match. I remember completely blowing away these fans in Utah's minds. Not only had they not grown ever seen wrestling, what little they had seen had been WWF, and here's Brad Armstrong and Brian Pillman in their primes. You can imagine the kind of match it was. They were right. all over the place. Mm-hmm. They did a plancha. I, Brad, Brian did a plancha, I remember this vividly, onto Brad and overshot Brad and literally took out the the metal guardrail in about the first row. <laughs> Legit. And just slammed his what on the concrete. I'm like, that looked like it hurt. <laughs> in the process, I mean, but Brian hopped right back up, so... So going into it now, you have Ricky Morton as Richard Morton as the heel against Brian Pillman as the as the babyface. It's kind of obvious Brian's going to win. He's the only competitor who got like an opening round by. It was, but I was looking forward to that match. Growing up in this territory, once again, I was a fan of the in ring product, and I grew up watching both those guys, and I knew they could deliver in the ring. And the athleticism of those guys was off the charts. And this was later lead. Of course, to the, the Japanese guys like Liger and the and the Mexican guys coming in and getting involved in the mix too. So I, I was very excited about that. There was also at the same time we just talked about Flair had left just earlier. They turned they had turned Lex Luger heel and he was he had won the title from Barry Windham, who they turned babyface. Right, and he was kind of a tweener there for a while. And we'll he was get suppo- to him if, be- I, if I recall correctly, he was supposed to win it from Flair, mm-hmm. but then Flair left. Flair said he would have put over Barry, in, right? You know, on on a handshake, but that that mm-hmm. didn't happen. It, it goes back to the whole thing of the, the big problem being Jim Hurd, right? In corporate, and he just saw all he saw. Not that he didn't see in like in Barry Windham what everybody else saw, but what he saw in Lex Luger was their version of Hogan. And what he right. didn't understand is, as much as I know you're a fan of Luger, and I actually give Luger a lot of credit, Luger mm-hmm. was nowhere close to Hogan in charisma or promo ability. I, absolutely. We've said off, Mike, I don't think we've said it on, on air here. 1997, Lex Luger was my favorite wrestler on the planet because that was the height of the NWO thing. Sure, and you sure. you know Sting was looming, figuratively and literally, uh, in, in the background. But Lex Luger versus the NWO like totally swept me up. But you had told me, like, 1997, Shawn Michaels was probably the best worker. Oh, yeah, at least North American for sure. Mm. There's an argument worldwide about. Whoops. Hello? Oh, there we go. Yeah, yeah. You, uh, you, time, you time just. Stamp, time stamp, yep, time yep, stamp. Yep. I, I, yeah. Okay, you ready? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, North American, no doubt uh, at that point, Shawn Michaels was. But internationally or, or, or overall, worldwide, there's an argument for Mitsuhara Masawa uh, I, I, in, in I, all I, Japan. I, I, but anyway, back to so, you, <laughs> but anyways, back to WCW. Uh, that's another show for another time, and we will cover all Japan in the 90s at some point because there was some incredible stuff going on there at that point. But anyway, looking forward to it. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, there there was like I said, was a very strange time in WCW. You also had the, the aforementioned split up of Doom, Ron being turned babyface. It just made sense for him to naturally be elevated up up the card. He just had a successful run as a tag team guy. He was in his prime. He was in his mid thirties. Great look, great body. Could cut a promo. He he was he was a black man, which had been kind of forgotten in the wrestling business at that point. Had always been underused and underappreciated. And it and is worth has- mentioning. I, I sorry if I'm cutting you off with this, but uh, it, it is worth mentioning that he had his number retired at Florida State, right? Yes, that is correct. Oh, and and that's at, at that time, he was only the second, I think, because I remember Gordon Soley saying that. And when Gordon Soley says something, there's just a, a mm-hmm. natural what what what's the word gravitas Ring of or whatever. Authentic- yeah, 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 like authentic to it. Yeah, yeah. And I just remember it, it, it Gordon Soley saying, "Only two men have had their numbers retired at Florida State. Ron Simmons has one." <laughs> well, there's more than that now, but yes, at the time he was telling at the, the time. Truth. Yeah, that was yeah. shoot. Yeah, but just to just to, the facility director I work is a huge Florida State fan, and I've asked him to name his Florida State football Mount Rushmore. Ron Simmons is the first guy he always. Named. Ron Simmons, Deion Sanders, I think work done in Charlie Ward are his four. That's some pretty good Heisman Trophy winner. It's right. it's it was also something Jim Ross, as the announcer, could get his teeth into because of his amateur football background. He was an All American. He was, you have to understand, Florida State, it's hard to think of now because they just won a national championship a few years ago, and they're kind of on a downturn right now. They're not that good. But they were a perennial power from the 80s all the way through the mid to mid-2000s. And that all started in the late 70s when the, when the legendary coach Bobby Bowden, who I just found out during college football yesterday, has contracted coronavirus. Prayers to you, coach. He's a legend, and he's up there, so he's in that high-risk group. Hope you pull through. But anyway, yeah. Coach Bowden was – that was one of his – Ron Simmons was his first big get when he got to when he got to Florida State in 78, I think it was, or 79. Ron was from Georgia, Warner Robins, which is kind of in the central part of the state, a little south of Atlanta. It's a military town. There's a military base there. And everybody and their brother assumed Ron was going to go to Athens and be a bulldog for Coach Dooley because that was the big football power in that area at the time. Florida State was so-so at best. But he got he got Ron Simmons, and Ron finished like fifth in the vo- the Heisman voting, which if you think about college football, that never happens for a defensive lineman. <laughs> right. And he was and he was an All-American. And and so Jim Ross with his ties to the Oklahoma program, the Sooners, and knowledge of college football, this is something he'd get his teeth into. And I remember I think they showed it on the pay-per-view broadcast. I know they showed it on this on this clash leading into it. They showed this awesome package that would yes. work today. That mm-hmm. would work today. It's it's something that I know you love, Seth. Our 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 dearly departed and beloved brother in arms, Norco, when we when we did our our our, our fantasy booking. If you remember that was kind of how he wanted to book his shows with vignettes like this vignette. And it was this great vignette of Ron Simmons back down in Tallahassee wearing his jersey and shorts training at the facility at the Florida State Seminole facility. And they even got Bobby Bowden to like put him over on an interview. This is a Hall of Fame football coach. That kind of right. had to stick in, in Vince's craw a little bit. Of course, Vince is so blinders on wrestling, he probably didn't even know who Bobby Bowden was. <laughs> but, but believe me, a lot of the people watching the product go, oh crap, that's Bobby Bowden. <laughs> and he's, he's it, it, that just to me, one of the greatest vignettes ever done in wrestling. Right. And it ended with Ron running stadium steps there in, in, in at Dope Walker. 
and holding the raised fist up at the top of the stadium. Just a great, great, great vignette. You it's, you know the one I'm talking about, then. Oh, yes, yeah. yes, absolutely, because I'm now at about the same age my dad was when we watched that vignette. And the whole thing of him running up the steps, I totally mm-hmm. get what my, my dad said at the time, because he said, my, my knees are screaming just watching that. And now, at the age of forty-five, I'm watching that. And like my knees are screaming just watching that. <laughs> my knees don't. My knees don't hurt. I'm wind. I'm gassed though. I'm blown up because I've run those stadium, not that stadium, <laughs> but other stadiums. When I played football, I was like, man, I hated running stadium steps. <laughs> it was a co- let's put it this way: when I was playing college ball, that was a fairly common common punishment for screwing up. <laughs> Son, you got you got twenty stadium steps. <laughs> But hey, you can't say you weren't in shape, right? <laughs> but, but yeah, I, I, that was. I also know at this at this uh, same time, they were also trying to bring in other athletes from other from other sports to give an air of credibility, but also build the spectacle. You can begin to see this now. What we're talking about you got this tug of war between in ring product versus spectacle. It was around this time Bill Kazmaier came in, who at the time legitimately mm-hmm. was the world's strongest man. He had done those straw man contests. I'm not quite sure how he got in. I think he might have started over in Japan and then came over here. But uh, he was he 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 was involved in that in in the build up for this show. He was the tag team partner of I want to say it was Rick, Rick Steiner. Steiner. Yeah, yeah. Because I think Scott, they, they had this. Was, I think there was an injury uh, bit with Scott at the time. The, the Scott Scott had been injured by the Hardliners, which was the awesome tag team of of. Dirty Dick Slater and Dirty Dick Murdoch, which you said yes. you didn't get then, but you totally understand oh, that. Yes. Yeah, to- total Hardliners fan now. Oh, yeah, yeah. What an awesome tag team. But at old school, just badasses. But they had left the company and had started tagging with Larry Zabisco at this time, which kind of made sense. We'll get to so that more once we get into the body of the, of the show itself. But they did an angle where where Bill was doing strongman demonstration, and they hit him in the in the ribs with a, with a 45-pound weight plate and cracked his ribs and he valiant baby face comes in but winds up winds up tagging rick when he shouldn't have tagged in and the and the nefarious heels that zabisco and anderson are take advantage of his hurt ribs and win so you had a lot going on at this point guys flipping and flopping back between baby face and heel kind of reestablishing who's where on the card but the only thing that probably didn't change from 89 90 to now was sting was the top baby face there's no doubt about that Right. And so that 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 kind of gives everybody a setup for where the company is, where the car. This is also the days I forgot to mention of Eligante. Eligante was he was obviously a project that never worked out, but he did look imposing. Right. I, I think and, the and, angle most people remember El Gigante for was in WWE when he was Giant Gonzalez and he did the, the chloroform bit on, on Undertaker at, at uh, one of the WrestleManias. The first WrestleMania, Jim Ross was in the company. Exactly right. But they they also had, at this point, too, I forgot to mention, another thing that, that you need to realize, besides Barry flipping and flopping, and you had the, 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 the rear bird flipping and flopping, the, the, the York Foundation being established, the establishment of this light heavyweight division, Ron becoming baby, Lex becoming a heel, kind of their pecking order. They were getting Van Vader on a fairly regular basis because of these deals with Japan. This is right before he started coming in full-time. Was you also, as part of the turning of Lex Luger heel and keeping Sting in the number one babyface slot, they had built up, and it also happened at this particular clash leading into it, there had been a series of gift boxes, big, huge, refrigerator-sized gift boxes delivered ringside. 
And the first one was Abdul the Butcher, and he attacked <laughs> Sting. And then the second one, which was after a Sting-Johnny B. Bad match on this Clash of the Champions lead-up, was Mick Foley as Cactus Jack. He had been in the company was, before. Was this around the time uh, Medusa was dressing up like a genie and doing the that belly came up, dances? That came, just, that, came, that came a few pay-per-views. Okay, okay. That was coming. That was coming. But but anyway, this everybody knew who Abdul the Butcher was around here because he's a long-time character, ba- character heel, badass monster you brought in for a few months to threaten because, well, that's just what Abby does. Right. And Mick was coming off of that the, the run he had had in Japan in those deathmatch tournaments with Terry right. Funk and yeah. Onita and those guys. And, and that's also, I forgot to mention, that is also why, why uh, Bad Street was added to the Freebirds because Terry Gordy had left mm-hmm. to go to Japan. Yeah, yeah, that was about the time he formed a Miracle Violence connection with... Right, with Dr. Death. With, yes, yes. And, and Buddy, J- Buddy Jack, was, who was always older than Terry and Michael, had retired. So it just made sense for Jimmy Jam to join them because gorgeous Jimmy Garvin had always run with them back in the day. Yeah, yeah. And so, I will still defend Jimmy Jam because you go back to that original back, Bad Street USA video from the mid 80s. Jimmy, Jimmy mm-hmm. Jam's in there. So probably because he was a heel. He was a yeah. heel in the territory at the time who legitimately hung with those guys outside of the ring. So it surprised me. And my first recollections of Jimmy, Jimmy, gorgeous Jimmy Garvin predate his time, his successful run here with the Crockett's in the mid eighties. It was as gorgeous Jimmy Garvin as like the number two heel in world class right behind the Freebirds, who was also feuding with the Von Ericks. He was feuding specifically with David before his untimely passing. And in a great angle where David beat him for the Texas heavyweight title, then he had to come to David's ranch and do work, and it was hilarious. I'm sure you've seen those clips before. Oh, oh, where, yeah, where, yeah, absolutely. He makes he makes Jimmy he makes he makes Jimmy and his manager at the time, Sunshine, like clean out the, the horse stalls and. <laughs> of course, it, 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 they send Bill Mercer out to be the to be to cover it, and then it turns into a fist fight in the end. But of course, right? <laughs> And how great was and, Bill Mercer at the time, anyway? Oh, oh, yeah, he was. He was. Bill Mercer is an underrated, underrated. He's one of those. We've talked about him before. When you talk about the old territories, he was a guy, weatherman, local. To get you a local weatherman or newscaster who already is over with the fans and has, like you said with Gordon Soley, a believability about him. Do the fans trust him? It's going to work every time, especially if you can convince them to treat the product seriously. And 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 Bill Mercer... Lance Russell, Bob Cottle, uh, Gordon Soley. These are the guys that did that. That's why it worked. Around here, the man that did a lot of sports casting and also did a lot of wrestling stuff, he was at WrestleManias, he passed away last last year, but Chet Kopic. That's, that's, oh, sure, sure. Yeah, that, that, that's a guy that kind of brought that, that gravitas like we were saying before. I, I, I just I, I really, really miss those type of announcers. Mm-hmm. And we know what Vince wants and what he goes after now. And they're not. I think he tried with Mike Adamley a few mm-hmm. years ago, right? But I think, and everybody says Mike was a nice guy, but Mike knew nothing about the product. Right. He wasn't Jim Ross, right? He looked and, good. And he, he could was, hold a microphone. He had a good voice, but I don't think he understood wrestling. No, and, and, and to Bill Mercer and Bob Cottle and these other guys' defense, they probably didn't either. But they learned real quick, and they were right. respectful, right? But anyways, I digress. But right. anyway, anyway, that was that. I, I will say this. I'm not the hugest fan of Jimmy Garvin and the Freebirds, but that run from the early 80s to the late 80s from World Class to Crockett, I don't think anybody used the female valet better than Jimmy, Jimmy Valiant did in that time. 
I'm not Jimmy Valiant, Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy Garvin. Mm-hmm. The way he used Sunshine and then, of course, his real-life wife, Precious, amazing. Just knew how to use them, and it worked both as a baby face and as a heel. Doesn't hurt when the baby face is because the heel Ric Flair's lusting after your manager, but I digress. <laughs> Which is another angle we probably will cover at another point in time because that's an incredible angle. But regardless, that's that's kind of where you are now. You've got guys that you expect to be the company are gone. Other guys are and so they're having to juggle. And with the jo- with the Johnny B bad situation and the and the box with Mick Foley in it. Mick and Abby both attacking Sting. They're establishing Mick and Abby as allies. We don't know. All they're telling us in promos is somebody paid them to take Sting out. So that's their only goal. They're not here to win titles. They're here to to put Sting out of wrestling. They're bounty hunters, essentially. And that was also kind of the start of Johnny B. Bad slowly turning babyface. Because Johnny was, I think we've talked about before, Johnny was a guy, Mark Marrow, who who Dusty had seen and said, man, he he looks like Little Richard. So he created the Johnny B. Bad gimmick, and it was a heel at first, but it quickly got over with the fans, and they had to turn on baby fans. So, yeah. Right. right. It, it was almost like a 90s version of Honky Tonk Man, except for it actually worked as a baby face as well. Right, right. So there's where we are to lead up. We, we, we've, got, we've got all these things, all these different things going on, but it's pretty much established now. Stains your top baby face. Ron Simmons is probably 1A, and that's why he's got the title shot. Luger is very much the top heel and the champion. They've got the York Foundation, which is kind of your mid-card heel stable. You've got you've got Barry Windham and Dustin uh, Rhodes kind of starting to form a, a partnership as a tag team. Dustin's been a babyface. Barry's just turned babyface. Abby and Abby and 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 Mick are in as bounty hunters to take out Sting. It's a, it's very much a time of, of flux for the company, but they're still going to going to soldier on. Mm-hmm. Right. So you so- want to go ahead started like like like. like the, where this like boom, where this card starts. And, oh, one other thing we didn't bring up. You mentioned it earlier. I think this might also happen at that Clash of Champion. The controversial interview that you said you remember. Oh yes, because yeah, <laughs> because Lex Luger had a manager who was the, the legendary Harley Race. They gave they gave Ron Simmons a quasi manager in Dusty Rhodes, mm-hmm. which made sense. Dusty was booking. He kind of steer both these guys the way he wanted the the the, pro, the angle to go. And he wasn't worried about Lex because he knew he knew Harley knew how to get him over. I think he did this partly because Dusty's an egomaniac, God rest his soul, and wanted to stay in the prime light. But Ron was new to being the top guy, and having Dusty there with him all the time for promos and stuff helps him kind of. This is how you the top babyface. I think you follow what I'm saying when I when I say right, that. Right, 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 exactly. But they did a they did the old contract signing, something they rarely do anymore. We always know what's going to happen when they do it nowadays, but it was fairly normal back then. And I believe it was also at that Clash of Champions that after the, the contracts were signed with Dusty and, 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 and Ron and his wife sitting on one side and Mr. Hughes, Harley and Loger sitting on the other. And if I remember right, Bischoff was the interviewer who ran, who ran this, 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 this interview spot. Mm-hmm. Luger, Luger basically, like the arrogant heel is supposed to say, after this match and I beat you and I'm still the world champion, I don't want our relationship to be over. I know you're a great athlete. Uh, I respect you for what you did on the football field. And I think there'll always be a place for you in Lex Luger's organization. Yeah. Because I was thinking, I, I, you make a really good driver. I need a good chauffeur. Right, Which right. has very subtle but not so subtle racial overtones. 
mm-hmm. which only in, could end one way, and they ended it that way, which was with Ron Simmons going over both tables. <laughs> he <laughs> just like, dove right across. It's like he flew. <laughs> yes, and how awesome was it to see Ron Simmons in a, in a, in a nice suit with cow- snakeskin cowboy boots on, <laughs> <laughs> flying over the table and, and, and just going after Luger, and it was just a great pull apart. That angle would never happen nowadays. It was too racially insensitive and controversial. But I always defend it with, he's the heel, you idiots. You're supposed to hate him. But right. that the black man got the come up, it's right there on the spot. What more do you want? Right, exactly. So, diving into diving WCW into Halloween WCW. Havoc 1991, we opened with an early CGI animation of going into a haunted house. I think I played something like this back in a 3DO back in the day. But we saw <laughs> all of the competitors in the Chamber of Horrors and Lex Luger for some reason. And we did see Oz and perhaps foreshadowing the role Kevin Nash would have in The Punisher because he had the short blonde hair. Jim Ross and Tony Schiavone host the show. And almost 30 years later, they're hosts of AEW. It seems the more things change, the more they stay the same. And And I still think one of my favorite announced teams ever, the two of those guys, they just had good chemistry. And they're both good. Yeah, exactly. And if you're only familiar with Jim Ross from his WWE run, this is the type of stuff that might be a little a little bit shocking because not only was this before his Bell Palsy issues, it was before he wore cowboy hats. He was not JR. He was Jim Ross. And Yeah, he looked like a good looking, nice young businessman or a banker. Always right, had a right. nice suit on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good a good smile. Because it was Vince that gave him the JR nickname and the cowboy hat, right? Because like everybody from the South right. has to wear cowboy hats. Right, he's even said he, he was he was, he fought against it at first, but now it's become his trademark. Right, and it's like well, you are from Oklahoma, bro. Don't fight it. <laughs> I'm always saying you you gotta gotta do what God gave you. But right. God didn't make me six foot five and chisel out of stone like he did Lex Luger. So I worked with what I had. Right, right. But here he's simply Jim Ross wearing a suit and just being one of the greatest play by play guys of all time. So right, they show the opening angle that put Barry Windham in the, into the Chamber of Horrors. In hindsight, it was probably a good thing because of we'll get into the Chamber of Horrors and why Barry probably was better off not being in that match. But it was hosted by a, a very young Eric Bischoff back w- before Scott Hall would call him, hey, Kendall. You know? Yeah, he dressed, dressed up like a vampire, if I remember right, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah, he looked like Dracula. So, And me being a car guy, I couldn't help but notice the cars everybody was driving up with. Cactus Jack pulls up in a Lincoln Town car, which just seems weird. You'd think he'd pull up in like a, a Jeep or something. No, <laughs> I remember I told you all them old timers always said, get a big car, kid. You can't be <laughs> on the road a lot. And, and Mick, I know Mick did a lot of new school stuff with his hardcore, but Mick was trained old school. He's trained Dominic oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Right. But he, you know, Mick just gets out, says, bang, bang. He was Cactus Jack, of course. Mm-hmm. And then DDP and Scott Hall pull up in a Datsun. <laughs> Which yeah, might but have isn't, been isn't it like a, what is it like a three hundred ZX? It, it was three hundred ZX, yeah, yeah. But uh, it just just reminds me about how the most underrated Autobot in history is Blue Streak. But that's geek stuff. And uh, and but, everybody forgets Dallas Page was not really a, a anything at this. Right. He'd been a manager of the of the of the Freebirds before mm-hmm. they brought. Well, I think he was even there for a little while while they had Oliver Humperdinck. Yes, and everybody even said, "There, why are you managing them? Because he's taller than any of the guys." <laughs> <laughs> right, you're bigger than all the guys you're managing. But uh, and, I and think he it also managed a uh, bad company in the AWA before that. Yes, he sure did. He sure did. I, I think he, I think he might have managed Scott as the Diamond Stud. 
the whole tie to diamond. It right. was the diamond exchange with the diamond dolls. That's where Kimberly came from. It was real life wife. They were also some of the other quote unquote diamond dolls were just the girls that worked at the strip club he ran. This is the early days of Dallas just trying to get his foot in the door of the wrestling business. And you can see here that the, the, that this goes that far back. Yeah, this, it's a shoot. Scott and Dallas have been that close for that long. They've been friends. Mm-hmm. And, and Dallas is just one of those guys everybody in the business likes because he's so damn happy. <laughs> <You can't>. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> There's a reason why Positively Page was kind of a shoot. But anyways, I digress. Yeah, yeah I've, I've heard that DDP is one of those guys is like, he is so nice, you kind of want him to go away. Right, right. <laughs> and I'm not like, saying that as an insult. <laughs> no, remember, I mean, when when, 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 after, when when Jake the Snake accepted his induction to the Hall of Fame, of course, he was inducted by Dallas. And he said, I just looked at him one time and said, have you ever had a bad day in your life? That's it. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I digress. But anyway, yeah, Barry Windham and Dustin pull up in a Mercedes convertible. And which I guarantee you was Dusty's car because he loved driving those things. <laughs> but I, I, he's driving his dad's car. I guarantee <laughs> But we are then shown in storytelling, Eric Bischoff has the worst peripheral vision because Arn Anderson and Larry Zabisco come in from like either side, which means they were within the field of Eric Bischoff's vision uh, and no, no ambulance. They just, they, they smash Barry's hand in, in the door and Dustin just gets in and takes the Mercedes off and presumably go to the hospital. So that was the right. angle that took Barry out of the chamber horrors match. Which, which is also the angle that earned Larry Zabisco the nickname The Cruncher. Right. I think they were trying to get him away from Living Legend for a while. And, of course, he took that, right. uh, that mantle back up when he was announcing. But, right. Which, by the way, Larry Zabisco, highly underrated announcer. I right. loved him on night. But, hey, absolutely. But, but, as a matter of fact, thinking more about that, that convertible Mercedes, really the classic and legendary angle where the four horsemen hire the cameraman to follow them to Jim Crockett Promotions offices and they break Dusty's arm. Make it good. Yes, yes, that one, that one. If you remember that, that, that vignette started with them tailing Dusty down Independence Boulevard there in, in Charlotte. And Dusty's driving a convertible <laughs> Mercedes in that. And I remember as a fan, that was like 86, I want to say 85. And so I'm like a 15, 16 year old kid going, why is Dusty not driving a pickup truck? <laughs> <laughs> right. It's like the one guy you think. Now, granted, it could be a nice pickup truck, right? Right. But you're, you're thinking, why is Dusty Rhodes, the son of a plumber from Austin, Texas, driving a Mercedes convertible? <laughs> it just didn't make any <laughs> right. sense. But Dusty loved those cars, man. So anyways. But we then see a stage which has several gimmick tombstones. It says Min Twins. Of course, the Minnesota Twins won the World Series in 1991. I think the World Series would have still been going on at that time. But... It, would, it was, and they were playing, of course, the Braves, who were owned by Ted at the time. So, Right, there you go. There was Here Lies Keith. His friends called him Kevin. We call him Kurt. Here Lies <laughs> Mike's. He lost it on his bike. Bear, he was full of hot air. And then Christy, <laughs> she felt our eyes all misty. I, I don't know why I wrote those down. It's just I'm not sure if there's something cryptic in there or not. There, that I that became a running. I think if I remember going all the way back to '89 in the original one, that was always kind of the stage design was right. the fake grave graveyard that mm-hmm. was the entrance for the rampway. I, rem, I if I remember correctly, 
the one in 1989 literally had JCP on one of them, <laughs> <laughs> which is right after Turner bought out Jim Crockett promotion. I'm like, that's 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 a little stiff. That's a little, <laughs> that's that's a little that that that's that's called ribbon on the square, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> that, 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 that I was like, ooh, that was that was that was a tater. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, Gary Michael Capetta introduced the the match as getting an opponent into the chair of torture that will render an opponent helpless. This is a Chamber of Horrors match. The teams had the creative names of Team Number 1 and Team Number 2. <laughs> wow, they, 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 they fought long and hard in the creative produ- production <laughs> meetings on that one, didn't they? But, but to, to, to explain to people what exactly the Chamber of Horrors was beyond that, it was billed as, once again, this is what we were talking about, this is, this is going to push this Halloween theme. It's essentially a cage match, but it's more of a hell in the cell type cage, not the old school cage. It always used where it was like right up against the edge of the ring. This is one where it was bigger and at ground level. So there was room to move around the outside of the cage as well. Mm. And there were supposed to be implements of torture all over. They were like what? Like, Coffins and kendo sticks. Right. And all, not kendo, kendo sticks, sticks, but chairs uh, and yeah, stuff like that. Chairs. And there was like uh, handcuffs uh, on, the, on the chair. And if I remember right, at port, points during the match, the coffins would pop open and, and some guy dressed up like a mummy would pop out and they would, would immediately get just <laughs> devastated by <laughs> either, either side. But in the middle of the ring was what looked like and it, it didn't even come down until a few minutes into the match out of the ceiling what looked like an old electric chair and and on the far side there was an old school dr frankenstein mad scientist in his labs toggle switch that said on off and said like ten thousand volts or something like that uh, on the side of the cage and so that was essentially all the guys entered, they were going to beat the crap out of each other, and the only way to win was to put one of your opponents in this chair and flip the switch. So, right. And they were calling it, what did Gary Michael Capetta call it? Uh, the chair of torture or chair of, yeah. of terror? Yeah, the chair of torture that would render an opponent helpless. It was an electric chair, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> but th- this is also that odd time where now that it's corporate, and if this had happened 10 years earlier and it was the Crockett's, they would have called it an electric chair. They would have, they would have, they would have, that's what they would have done. They would have, they sold up the violence. They didn't try to pretend they were family entertainment. They would basically, you just kind of knew as a, a parent what you were getting into when you brought your kids to wrestling. Now you've got them trying to maintain some of that, but also be family friendly. Don't know if it always worked. This is probably a good example of that. Wouldn't you agree? Right, right. And so, so they brought out each member. I, uh, it was kind of, kind of an op- off and on thing as far as team one, team two. But the, the, the thing I remember after rewatching this is Sting comes out last because obviously he's the biggest star in the match. Right. And he comes right. out and he beats his chest like Tarzan and the U.S. belt just flops off his his. his yes, belly. I remember that. Because <laughs> he was the U.S. champion at the time. And the Steiners, I believe, were the world tag team champion. And I, if I remember right, this we had mentioned earlier in the buildup to this, Scott had been injured. This was Scott's first time back after the injury, wasn't it? Right, right. I think the enforcers were the 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 tag team champions, but they 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 had beaten. I think it was Rick and Bill Kazmaier because Bill Kazmaier was filling right. in for, and, and, for in the match yeah. I was talking about where, they, where 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 Bill got his ribs hurt earlier in the right. show. Right, right. And the enforcers were the name that Zabisco and 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 went and uh, Arn Anderson were using at the time. Right. So your so your babyface team once again is Sting, Eligante, who really can't do anything, and the Steiners. And then right. the heel team was supposed to be Barry Windham. We've already explained explained why he is it. 
and it and it was a good thing. It, it progressed the storyline along of the enforcers being top heels. It gives Larry the name Cruncher, and it gets Barry out of a match he shouldn't have been in because he wasn't a heel anymore. And he was he was replaced by by Mick, and then you had you had Dula. Vader. Yeah, yeah, it, and, it was Mick, and, Abdullah, Vader, and uh, Scott Hall, the Diamond Stud. And Diamond Stud was always supposed to be in it. And later on, Bill Kazmaier will have a match. He was supposed to initially, and it was all advertised, he was supposed to face Mick Foley. But they put Mick in the match because of his ties to Abby. And then he, and so, so Oz replaced him and that moved him out of the match. They just flipped the two of them, basically. And I think Vader was there to be the Barry Windham replacement, correct? I think you're right. Yeah. But really, if you look at all four sides, you've got Steiners, Hall of Famers, Sting, Hall of Famer, Abdullah, Hall of Famer. Mick Foley Hall of Famer, Scott Hall Hall of Famer. Really, the only the only weak link in this match is Eligante, don't you think? Right, yeah, and and that's the thing. You have all this great talent in this match, and really, what it probably should have been is just a straight up eight man tag or eight man brawl, like in in the cage, yeah, like street fighter, street fight in a cage or something. Right, right, right. Without without the electric chair gimmick. Right, right. And Dusty, who who conceived this idea and booked it. Has in year and in, in hindsight has joked about it. I saw a special on on the network before he passed where he just la- Mick was on the panel too and they were laughing about it because <laughs> it's like Dusty's like I think Michael Hayes was kind of ribbing Dusty and whose idea was that? And Dusty's like yeah I got I got I got to claim that one. What he goes it sounded great on paper. <laughs> it's going to be <laughs> right. a great spectacle. It was one of the things we talk about now that problem of balance, trying to balance family friendly with with old school wrestling. I don't think anybody bled this match, did they? I, I don't think so. I, I do remember early on the brawl erupt. Scott Steiner instantly hit Scott Hall with an amazing power bomb. If you go back and watch that, there yep. was a really good yep. looking power bomb. And Steiner was so athletic in those days. He was doing the Frankensteiner and all that. But don't get me wrong. I will take Big Papa Pump, Big Papa Pump over the Scott Steiner that wrestled good any day of the week. I remember a spot where after one of the ghouls, I think that's what they were calling them, the ghouls that popped out of the coffin and got waylaid immediately by probably Scott Hall, if I remember right, or Vader, mm-hmm. that, that Mick like picked up the top of the, the lid of the coffin and like just threw it straight up in the air and it like landed smash hard right on the top of Sting's head. I'm going, ow? <laughs> <laughs> and and, and, and I, I, no offense, Sting should have bled from that. They threw right. each other into the cage multiple times. I, I, I'm not, I am not a bloodthirsty person. I know that's hard to believe as the, as the host of examining the dead, but there is a time and a place for rest for blood and wrestling. This was a time for, it, and you're not giving it to us. Right, and it right. makes zero sense. Yeah. <laughs> makes zero I, sense. I, I just also remember the, the chair uh, being lowered from the ceiling and McFoley probably got squashed by it. it. It's like, yeah, he, he was, he was, laying on the, like he was, he was on the... dead. And then it's all like, he's like squirms out of the way. <laughs> right. He's like, yeah, he was laying there cell and he's like, Oh crap. He has to roll out of the way. And I also, I remember Gante just literally walking around like a lost puppy dog. Cause he didn't know what to do. <laughs> right. He couldn't and, work to begin with. And, 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 and God, God love all the guys on the heel side, especially the ones that are no longer with us, but they're like, I ain't getting near that. Do you see what the heck he's doing? <laughs> you think Abby or Vader or any of those guys are all four of them are hall of famers. I'm not getting anywhere near this big, this big oaf who doesn't know what he's doing. He's probably going to hurt me. <laughs> <laughs> and then that 10 guys then come out dressed like dead paramedics and they kneel like they're going to bring down some, some God of some sort. Yeah. Carrying a stretcher, an old school stretcher, if I remember right. 
Yeah, yeah, apparently waiting for the paramedic gods or something. And then right. Abdullah is climbing the cage for some reason. Uh, major surprise. Why is a 400-pound guy? Right? <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, Mick Foley and Abdullah actually do bleed at, at some point in this. So, but Right, finish... I, I, yeah, I remember, I, remember, I remember Abby bleeding at some point. Oh, right. Another thing before you get to the finish, I totally remember, because it was a gimmicked toggle switch, because this is something Mick and Dusty laughed about in that, that earlier mentioned interview I was talking about. The toggle switch actually flips down into the on position because it wasn't even rigged up very well. But uh, <laughs> I, I don't, don't want to speak. I don't want to speak ill of Klondike Bill, but I'm sure Klondike built it because he was building everything for the company back then. <laughs> and I'm sure I'm sure David Crockett was probably involved because David was the guy that did all that kind of stuff. He was, you know, the, the money man over that stuff. Yeah. That was all the you job have he to got. do is listen to Tony Schiavone's podcast and he, you'll hear all the great Klondike Bill stories you'll ever want to hear. Oh, yeah. Yes. And, and, and of course this, if you want to, if you want to uh, just an encapsulation of why WCW failed, okay, <laughs> as a company, there's about a, a two minute period in there where they clearly, instead of ignoring the fact that the toggle has fallen and it's completely given away the gimmick because no electricity surging through the chair, right? <laughs> but even <laughs> though it's the switch is on, the circuit has been closed. They put a camera right on it to show it. <laughs> And then you see Mick Foley click cage and Cactus Jack. He he flips the switch up, trying kind of real subtly to make to cover up for it. <laughs> and it's like, well, you're on camera, and everybody can see it now. Are you kidding me? <laughs> and, and, and 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 Dusty's like on the interview, going, "Well, thanks, Mick. You was trying to help me out." <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just figured it wasn't time yet for the finish. So I was trying to cover for it. And this is a full five minutes before the finish happens. But, but the, the, the finish, if I remember right, it they, they kind of isolated. The heels kind of isolated. I want to say it was Rick Steiner. Right. And, and he they was fighting to get they were they're fighting to get him into the into the chair. And he does, because it's Rick, he does a really, really impressive belly to belly type suplex move, putting Abby in the chair. Right. Then drop drops the Drops the, the the little crown thing over Abby's head, and then Mick, who's not looking, flips the switch, and then the special effects come. Now it's supposed to work. So, right. so at least Klondike Bill was on his cue right here. The pyrotechnic guys like right. send the send the fireworks. And, it, and I have to admit, for as crappy a match as it was, that made no sense. Didn't have enough blood in it for what it was. The whole fiasco of the switch, the pyrotechnics, and Abby's cell job as being electrocuted was pretty impressive. Yeah, once you get past the whole idea of why would a national-wide company do an, an electrocution live yes. on, on air. But uh, the, yeah. the big thing to drive home in that is when Cactus flipped the switch, he thought he was electrocuting Rick. Stein. But Rick yeah, yeah but, Rick, but Rick had actually flipped Abby into the chair. So mm-hmm. Cactus actually threw the switch on Abby. And there, there was kind of a bit of a fallout there where Abby went nuts. I don't know if it led to a... A breakup or anything like that, but well, it's planting the seed for the later breakup. Right, right, and and so these ghouls or w- whatever you call these undead paramedics, they're still kneeling on the outside because they were ostensibly supposed to be there to carry off the victim of the chair. That oh, okay. was what the announcer. That's what the announcer said. I think it was Shivani that said it. Okay, and and I will say this for all that the the the, the final sequence between Rick blocking it, the belly to belly. Mick selling, he doesn't know that he thinks it's Steiner, but it's Abby. Ab- his his reaction because Mick, and he's so good at that high peeled squeal pitch. He does Abby, Abby. He's like all upset. He hurt his friend. Abby coming to and attacking Mick. That was all very well done. I thought. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was like Abby just went nuts and just started thrashing everybody. Attack- 
everybody. And, and then him and Mick like take out all 20 of those paramedics. Don't they? <laughs> feel that, that's that, that. I don't know who any of those guys were, but I'm sure they were local indie guys. I, yeah. <laughs> and I know Abby well enough to know he was going to make it quote unquote look good. So they probably felt those, but, I, <laughs> but next up for, we, for all it was worth, I, I think the finish for what it was, was about as good as you could. Yeah. 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 It's, it's fair to say that, but, Next up, Eric Bischoff and Missy Hyatt interviewed the Young Pistols, who accused the Patriots of being yellow, even though they're actually wearing yellow. Maybe it was gold, but you know. <laughs> it was gold. And I want to get back to where where the company is at that point. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Missy Hyatt was dressed like a gangster or a flapper. She had a costume on as well. Uh, yeah, like yeah. Bischoff. She had some sort of. It, it just looked like I don't want to say generic, but it was a Halloween type costume. I, I'm just not quite sure what's like a gangster girl, like 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 the girlfriend right, yeah, of a gangster. Once again, I understand she hasn't aged well, but at this point in time, Missy Hyatt was all the way live, was she not? Oh no, oh, yeah, yeah, and, and we'll we'll she get was, to Medusa in a bit. She, <laughs> yes, Missy Hyatt was extremely good looking and, and in shape at this point, and she was so good at playing the ditzy blonde right. she's really good in the role but the, the the young pistols had been the wild-eyed southern boys if those don't know the, they were terry uh, tracy smothers who side note had just recently put up put a tweet out or not tweet out i had some fans put a tweet out he is recovering from his cancer the everything's looking good so if you're sending prayers or positive thoughts to tracy right now continue it he's he's i know tracy he's a fighter he's he's gonna he's not gonna kick out of this but because we all eventually do the three three count but he's gonna fight as hard as he can till then so he's kicked out for now and let's let's keep you know positive thoughts headed his way but i digress oh, but i tracy, literally I, heard stories of tracy smothers like calling spots in his sleep like mm-hmm, like he, yeah. he's talking in his sleep and he's calling spots <laughs> and, and, and you talk about a completely underrated tough guy when he cuts that promo straight up everybody dies he kind of means that tracy, <laughs> you know and his partner was i believe uh, scott armstrong correct I believe so, yeah. Steve, he was the one that went on to be uh, Lance Cassidy in WWE for a little while. Right, right. But anyway, it was it was one of the Armstrongs. It wasn't Brad. It wasn't Road Dogg. It was either Scott or Steve. Yeah, it was Steve. Uh, it was Steve, yeah. It was Steve. It was Steve. And and, and just, just with the recent passing of the patriarch of the Armstrong family, Bullet Bob, rest in peace, brother, we will be doing a Classic Wrestling Memories, focusing on the entire wrestling family. Is the Armstrongs coming soon? So, just wanted to let our listeners know that as well. But they had been the Wild Eyed Southern Boys, and they got switched from being the Wild Eyed Southern Boys from I want to say Tennessee or Georgia to the Young Pistols from Wyoming, and given more of a cowboy gimmick than old Confederate soldiers, good old boys gimmick. And that was once again this idea of WCW being too Southern, and the, the Turner people wanted to make it more national. They also decided to turn them heels in the process, which. For what it's worth, I think they make. I think Tracy and, and Armstrong make a better baby face than heel. But that's my opinion. What say ye? Well, I, I've seen Tracy Smothers be be a great heel, but but the look they they had that long hair, they had the good build, they were just good looking guys. They could both go Athletic. in the ring. So yeah, yeah. So I, I say baby face. And then the Patriots, of course, were were another weird time for WCW. They were the U.S. Tag Champions at the time, mm-hmm. and they were they were Curtis Thompson who. I've worked several times. In fact, he's the only guy I think I ever did ever did a job for me, but never took a bump. But I digress. <laughs> Another tag team he was at when I was working, but I digress. And uh, Todd Champion, who was a big, good-looking guy, but neither one of them were great workers. But it was just a generic gimmick where Todd Champion was supposed to be some generic military guy, 
And the other one, uh, uh, Curtis Thompson was Firebreaker Chip, and he's supposed to be a firefighter. Right. They I looked think like they were trying to make like action figure looking heroes. Yeah. Is what is what the idea yeah. was. You're thinking a military guy, a first responder. This is like I'm thinking they're thinking kids toys, and it just came off as two guys who look like they had escaped from from the local male strip club. But I digress. <laughs> right. And really, if you're going to have a military gimmick, you probably shouldn't be a private. Yeah, yeah, and they had just had Ranger Ross before that, who had a legitimate uh, military background. Todd Champion did not. But, uh, hey, they both had decent bodies. They couldn't come mm-hmm. Probo. They couldn't work. Yeah. But <laughs> Todd Champion had nice hair. Yeah, yeah. Well, a little older there was, but, uh, <laughs> but but it is what it is. Anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. I just thought we needed to explain to, to, the, to the listeners who those two teams were. Right. But next on the card, PN News and Big Josh beat the Mysterious Creatures, basically a squash match, the, the Jobber team somehow got heat on the 400 pound pn news pn news was the baby face in peril and all i'll say about pn news is he was a better rapper than wrestler and he wasn't a very good rapper (laughs) so what does that tell you (laughs) Uh, the creatures are once again i think just i remember one of them was jumping joey mags i believe if i remember right who who was who was who was a, a, a an enhancement talent who had lost in like the opening round of of the aforementioned uh light heavyweight tournament and sadly, my understanding, he was the only wrestler was at Brian Pillman's funeral. Oh, wow. Because so many guys just, it happened in the middle, and, and, and it, so many guys took it so hard. I know he was tight with Brian. But that's not a knock on Brian. Brian was very well thought of by guys in the business. But uh, Joey is one of those guys who was a good hand in the ring, just didn't have any charisma and couldn't cut a promo, but was a solid worker. And, and, and I think he had. I think he was in a tag team for a while in the early nineties. WCW. I think. I think he was. But he was one of the creatures. I can't remember who the other one was. But the creature. It was just that Halloween theme again. I believe it was they, Johnny Rich. Okay, which is I want to say Tommy's cousin. Okay. But they were just. They were just like you said, a generic mass tag team that was just to push along this Halloween. And in the process, you get PN News and who was it? Who was it? Big Josh. You said it was Big Over. Josh. Yeah, the future Doink. And of course. Matt Bourne, another legit badass who was a really, really good wrestler, but had his own demons. And and everybody rags on Doink, and I'm like, can you imagine that gimmick getting over with anybody who couldn't work like Matt Bourne? Are you kidding me? No, no, you have to be able to be good. I I thought heel Doink was like one of the greatest things to ever come along, and I even like Babyface Doink. And I'll be honest with you, as far as entrance music goes, that evil clown entrance music they have for him as a heel, that was incredibly good entrance. It just sounded creepy, and it fit. Exactly, yeah. But... Anyway, but going back to what I said at the top of the show about this show having very good wrestling in it, Terrence Taylor, like we talked about before against Bobby, how great are these two guys? How awesome but on this paper the, does this match sound? That right there is an example of how crazy WCW at this point. Think about what you just said. A heel Terry Taylor against a babyface Bobby <laughs> right. in a singles match. <laughs> right. <laughs> Everything about that statement is wrong. I'm sorry. Right. Terry Taylor, the perennial white meat baby face from the territories in the 80s. Bobby Eaton, arguably the greatest tag team wrestler of all time and almost always been a heel and a great heel at that. Everything is wrong about what you just said. Right. But the in-ring action is going to be good because they can both go. Right. And I remember telling Terry Taylor you know, when I met him at one of the TNA conventions, I, I told mm-hmm. him about how underappreciated he was. And he was so classy about it because he said, so many people tell me that I'm underappreciated, which means that I'm appreciated. I just thought that was <laughs> such a classy response. 
And but, I've said this before, yeah. and I'll say it again. If you've heard the rumor that Bobby Eaton is like legitimately one of the two or three nicest guys ever in the wrestling business, I can verify that it's true. He is legitimately one of the nicest guys you will ever meet. I'm glad he's kind of got his meds and his pacemaker working again. As he's kind of kicked out, his health is doing better because yeah. the world needs more Bobby Eaton's. And I don't mean that the wrestling business, the world needs more Bobby Eaton's in it. He's just a good guy. Yeah, and, and really, if there was one thing Bobby Eaton couldn't do, it was a promo, but I think that's kind of that Alabama accent working against yeah, him. No matter how hard he tried, you knew he was from Huntsville. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you, can, you, can, you cannot take the Huntsville out, 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 out of Bobby. And and I will say this, I, I it varies from day to day. Bobby Eaton might have been the lightest guy I've ever been in the ring with. Did not even know he was there. Yeah, I think you said the same thing about yeah. Jeff Hardy, too. Yeah, I mean, Jeff was super light. Ricky Morton super light. But J- Bobby is legitimately one of the lightest guys I've ever been. Did not even know he was there. And I know it like a million bucks. Quick story on, on the kindness of, of of Bobby Eaton. And this is all due credit to Jim Cornette stealing this story from that he told on one of his podcasts. Back in the days when it was Dennis and Bobby and Midnight Express, they had done a house show. They stopped somewhere like a gas station. Bobby was sitting in the front with Jim. Jim was driving and Dennis was in the back. Dennis didn't want to didn't want to get out. So Jim said, Hey, you want anything? He said, yeah. And he gave him what he wanted and they went in and Jim wins in. And as they're walking in, Jim and, and, and Bobby are walking in. There's a local, I don't want to say homeless guy, but a poor guy panhandling, begging. And Bobby stops to talk to the guy. Jim goes in, gets him and Dennis's stuff and comes back out. Bobby's still talking to this, 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 this beggar. When Jim gets back in the car and next thing they know, Dennis and Jim watch Bobby go in with this guy and Dennis is looking at Jim's like, what the hell is going on? About 10 minutes later, they come out. And this guy, has, the beggar guy, has like three grocery bags full of food. I'm imagining like <laughs> the, the old, the old, the old uh, movies where there's always the baguette sticking out of the top. That's what I'm, <laughs> I'm imagining in my mind. And Bobby's talking to him. And then Bobby reaches in his pocket and hands the guy some money. <laughs> and then he gets in the car. And Dennis is like, what the hell were you doing, man? He goes, well, the guy was bored. He goes, you do realize you just got that guy beat up because wherever he's from, it's the hood. And as soon as he gets back there, they're all going to beat him up, steal his groceries, and steal the money you gave him. But he goes, so I hope you feel good, Bobby. <laughs> that That's just too bad. That's how Bobby is. Here's a guy he's never met, and he stopped, probably dropped 60 bucks on this guy, 80 bucks, in 80s money on him. That's, that's, can I, can I, is there a better story about how nice a guy Bobby Eaton really is? Yeah. T- talk about somebody with a, with a great heart. Heart of gold. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry. Go ahead. The, the, back to the action. I, I mean, an amazing <laughs> match. Yeah. Anyway, Bobby won clean with the Alabama Jam, which I can't imagine being a great thing to do your to your back. But. It's not good for your sacroiliac, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I've taken the Alabama Jam. <laughs> Johnny B. Bad beat Jimmy Jam Garvin. At this time, we talked about it before, I think both guys were heels. But Jimmy... Right, and they were slowly turning, turning Johnny baby face and slowly turning Jimmy back to being a heel. Right, right, and 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 Jimmy, I think took the the babyface role. It looked like Michael Hayes cheap shotted Johnny, and then winked at the camera because Hayes was supposedly injured. He had his hand in a sling, but then right, he, and of course yeah. there he was. If you remember, Hayes is wearing an Atlanta Braves cap at the time, and this is on Turner, like you said, the Twins and the Braves are in the World Series at this point. So you get where they were going with this. That's the only reason that that I think I think the Freebirds were babyfaces at this time was they're so tied to Atlanta, the Braves are really popular, and you're in an Atlanta-based company, I think you get the point. Right, right. But the finish was Garvin hitting the DDT while the ref's back was turned, had the visible pin, but then Johnny hit his left hook and got the pin, even though Jimmy's foot was on the ropes. 
After the match, Michael Hayes vocalizes protest and demonstrated by laying down and putting his foot on the ropes. It's the type of thing that looks corny now, but it's like in those days, they were trying to tell the story to the people all the way up in the nosebleeds, if that makes sure. sense. Sure. Yeah. Yep, yep. And and for what it's worth, we talk about pretty punches and wrestling work punches. Hayes' jab being one of them. Lawler, all of Lawler's punches. The kiss that don't miss, that left hook that 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 Mark Merrow, Johnny Bad did, that is a pretty that's one of the prettiest work punches I've ever seen. It's gorgeous. Oh yes. Yeah, yeah. And Michael Hayes is like like I said, his his left hand. I get the feeling it's yeah. another one of those you probably wouldn't feel a thing. Another one I throw in there is the late great big boss band Ray Trailer had beautiful punches. Oh, oh my yes. gosh. Especially when he anyway. ducked down and like do the uppercut. Oh yes, yes, yes. But we could do a whole show on great work punches and bad work punches, but there's a few for you right there, good ones. But world television champion stunning Steve Austin with Lady Bosom, Lady Blossom uh, versus <laughs> Dustin you did, Rhodes. So you did, you did catch that double entendre they were going for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They wrestled to a 15-minute draw, and I think Austin was married to Lady Blossom at the time. He was. I, he was. Yeah. She, he was. And I, I had actually early – I think I've, I mentioned this before. I had early, early on in my career, in my training, I had met – I had met Steve when he was still stunning Steve through Jeannie, Lady Blossom, because one of my female fans was shopping buddies, was a regular, uh, regular at the wrestling events and and got to know Jeannie that way. Super sweet lady. And the I've British accent. Yeah. And, 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 the, and, the, and the, the, the British accent is not a work, guys. She really is from England. So it was this was stunning Steve. This was the long haired uh, poor man. Yes. Rick yes. Flair, ladies and gentlemen, Steve person. Austin with long hair. He was already starting to bald at that point, though, which I thought was funny. <laughs> but he was a guy, you've heard it said a million times, we know what Austin became, biggest draw in the history of the business. Even then, you could see a couple years in the business, this guy was special. Oh, yeah, he I, had, I he saw had it the too. body, he had the look, he could cut a promo, he could work. It's just, I don't know, if he doesn't shave the head and he doesn't pick up the Stone Cold persona, he obviously would not have become the star that he became. But I think if he'd stayed with the technical guy, he still would have been a Hall of Famer. You yeah, know? yeah. I think he still would have made it as a babyface. Sure, but I just don't think it would have been at the level. It was right. the gimmick right. as much as it was the worker. He, but he would have been more like maybe Ricky Steamboat level type thing, where he's not mm-hmm. the absolute top guy, but but he's, but he's by, in the by changing the gimmick, but by changing the gimmick, he's now in the Ric Flair, Hulk Hogan, Rock that you know that top that. But and right. that's fine. It, it's he's an incredible talent, and you could even see it back then. But and and th- this was before was, Austin had that awesome three chord, uh, power chord theme. This is before Dustin had that great cheesy awesome natural theme. But you look at how he's a natural. I love yeah. that song. <laughs> yeah. But you look at how agile Austin is in this match. He's doing drop kicks. There's a fro and broke his neck, and he had two bad knees. <laughs> right, right. But but to to go back to what you were saying about Hall of Famer, I'll take the punch, punch, stomp, stomp, Stone Cold over Stunning Steve, who wrestled good. Right, yeah. right. And and for what it's worth, the, the good wrestler Steve had incredible matches in this era with both Steamboat and Dustin, and we both know what kind of technical wrestler Steamboat and Dustin are. So right, right. And I know Dustin bled in this. I think I saw where it happened because Dustin missed a body press and w- spilled to the floor. And I think that's where he, he bladed. But then Steve Austin hit the double axe handle from the top rope to the floor, Randy Savage style. 
mm-hmm. and good gravy. Amazing! How amazing would have Randy Savage in his prime versus Steve Austin in his prime have been? It's just which oh, one's yeah, going to be the heel? <laughs> and the promos, the promos. Exactly. Are, are you kidding me? You talk. You you would talk about talking people into the building. There you right. go. And and what would happen? Whether it was Austin with uh, Lady Blossom or Austin with Deborah or, or whatnot. That even though one's going to be the, the the heel, one's going to be the baby face. They're both going to tell their respective women, go far away. Yeah, but yeah, but it's, <laughs> but at some point we are going to see the Marlay. We are going to see the Marlena Lady Blossom cat fight, aren't we? Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That they probably you, run you back out have or to. something like that. But you kind of have yeah. to. But and I, I'm not saying I'm 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 begging for it. But bra and panties, evening gown matching those two, I'm not going to complain. <laughs> well, you said it, not me. But <laughs> you thought it. You thought it. <laughs> yeah. But they they did go to a time limit draw because that was the gimmick with the television title at the time was I think it was a ten or fifteen minute time limit. Yeah, we've talked about that before. And we've talked about the history of that belt it's, and the whole idea. The, it's a lost the whole concept art. of it. Yeah, it is. It is, and I think that is why guys like Arn Anderson, guys like Steve Austin, in their primes, were perfect guys to hold that belt. Exactly. They could yeah. get. They could get that. They could get that story over in 15 minutes for a television crowd. So we had Bill Kazmaier submitting Oz, who was a young, blonde-haired Kevin Nash. And like we it, said, had been pulled out of the, the Chamber of Horrors match and replaced by Mick Foley uh, and, because Mick was originally supposed to be in that match. Right. And, and I think not, not only was I think that was because you wanted that you wanted the Abbey – Mick Foley in the match together, trying to stack in the deck against Sting in this 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 cage. They were trying to get Bill Kazmaier over, and they were more willing to sacrifice Kevin Nash as a Greenhorn at that point than they were Mick Foley, who they obviously had plans for with him being this bounty hunter taking out the top babyface. Yeah, yeah. You've got to remember, that, Nash was like this is only like the second year of his career, and Mick yeah, Foley he was, he's big and he looked good, but he was greener than grass. Right, right. And you Foley had already been in like I think good five or six years by this point. Oh, yeah, he started, like, what, 85, 86? So he'd yeah. been in business five, six years, yeah. Right, right, exactly. So anyway, this looked terrible on paper and was probably worse it, than execution. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> but it did what it was supposed to do. It got it got Bill Kazmaier over this big, right. strong guy. To see a guy submit a guy the size of Kevin Nash, that's impressive. Right, right. And a guy 330 pounds to be able to skin the cat, that's right. impressive, and, and, too. And this, on top of some of the other matches, like we mentioned the Creatures match, that is that is the era we're in in pay-per-views in 91, where nowadays every every match on a pay-per-view has an angle coming into it, or there's consequences or something, or it seems like it could be a main event on a Raw. Right. Well, we're back yeah. then. We're, we're still in this era where you're having these big blow-off matches or these big gimmick matches, but you're still having essentially enhancement matches, too. You know? Right. The something creatures to give the, versus, the crowd a chance to catch their breath. Yeah, the, the creatures match, that's an enhancement match. This is an enhancement match to get Bill Kazmaier over. Right. So then we get to Doug Summers against Van Hammer. And oh, Van... now you want to talk <laughs> freaking Hammer. Yeah, Van Hammer. Now that's a name I've not heard in a long time. A long ironic, time. Uh, ironic with the, with the recent passing of Eddie Van Halen, of course, legendary guitarist, rest in peace, King Edward, that we bring up this name because it's obvious the name was, was, was meant to, to call back to Van Halen. This is an example, once again, I think, of what we were talking about multiple times about the the tug of war between the old school guys wanting in ring versus the new corporate guys just looking at a guy's look and thinking, well, this guy can be this guy can be a star because looking at Van Hammer, he looks like a star. Right. 
six four, six four, six five, chiseled, tan, long flowing hair, good looking guy. Problem is, you can't cut a promo, and he's absolutely horrible. Right, because I remember watching this match, and he did a leg drop while he is parallel to his opponent. I thought the whole point of doing a leg drop is you got to be perpendicular. Oh, I remember when he did that spot. They, I don't know if he was trying to do a leg drop or an elbow drop, and I can't remember how the announcers tried to tried to play it off, but it was yeah, it was horrible. He was right. horrible. If I remember right, this match was originally billed, was supposed to be Michael Hayes versus versus Van Hammer. Van Hammer. But like we said, they were doing the injury angle with, with Michael Hayes. Uh, and once again, this is a, another example of yet another enhancement match. Essentially. This, should have been a ta- this should have been on Saturday night, WCW Saturday night, not on a pay-per-view. Right. But they bring in Doug Summers, who's not figured in, who's not a, not a, he's a, he's a, he's a, a by-appearance guy, meaning he only gets paid by appearance under contract. But he's a seasoned veteran who's been around a long time. He's been a top guy in the AWA. Um, sad that this is one of his few appearances on a national big promotions pay-per-view because Doug Summers was good. Doug Summers was he was past his prime, obviously. But if you don't believe me on how good Doug Summers was, go talk to Shawn Michaels. Shawn Michaels and, and Marty Jannetty as the Rockers feuded with the PYT Express, which was Doug Summers and Playboy Buddy Rose in the AWA before they broke through in, in, uh, with Vince and had a long-running feud with him over the AWA tag titles. And both Marty and Shawn have openly said it was a match they had with Doug and, and Buddy that was a bloodbath. They bled like crazy that finally got those old school fans to accept these young high flying pretty boys. Cause they're like, if they're tough enough to bleed like that and, and go 30 minutes with Doug Summers and buddy Rose, they deserve to be. Mm-hmm. And that, that art I think is completely lost in the business nowadays. Taking an older guy who's past his prime, but because of his, of his, of his longevity has proven to the fans, he's a badass. And then taking that same guy and having him give the rub to the young guy. That's completely lost now. So anyways, I think Doug is as good a hand as there is in the business, especially in that era. I believe we just lost Doug a couple years ago, too. Um, I think so, yeah. So there's not a whole lot anybody could do with with, with Van Hammer. And Doug did the best he could. So it is what it is. Right, right. I'm just happy happy you got a good payday, you know? Yeah. And even at 16, who I really, I can strum a guitar. I'm certainly not somebody that's going to be able to to pick a lead. But mm-hmm. even at 16, I could tell, like, this guy can't play guitar. Did they have him carrying, like, a Jackson flying V into the ring? Yeah, it looked like it. And, and he, he'd do the whole thing where he would swing the, the, the guitar around his neck. and Yeah, yeah, a la Steve Vai in early days, right? Right, right. And and I, I look at him, it's like, there's nothing even remotely headbanger about this guy because this is really this is about the height of metallica i think it's around the time the black album hit. yeah once again i've heard tony giovanni talk about that. that's how out of touch the the corporate guys were you're trying to push a heavy metal guy at the birth of grunge and the death of, of hair metal right that right. that look and that gimmick probably would have worked in 86 in mm-hmm. fact it did work it was called the rock and roll express right but we get this muscle head with a generic track that would have sounded generic in 1983 and here we are right. in 1991 so, and you're pushing a heavy metal headbanger, like I said, in the days of grunge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty yeah, sure. Once again, you get another, another, another snapshot of YWCW. <laughs> right. I'm pretty sure Hammer would have gotten his ass kicked by actual headbangers I went to high school with. And, oh yeah, you know. I know some guys. I know some guys <laughs> I played bands with. And we're like, oh, kick that son of a gun's butt. <laughs> yeah, the guys that would pull up in their Chevy Nova with no hood 
or they right, walk right. around with their Steve I signature guitars that they can't play. <laughs> yeah, with like Slayer or, or, or Metallica blasting off the speakers. Exactly. I bought. I mean, I bought you... those kids as as bigger badasses than I bought Van, Van Hammer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I've always said about Slayer, their fan base, and I like Slayer. But their hardcore fan base, when you carve the name of the band in your arm, you're a true fan. <laughs> and right. I've met those guys, but I digress. But WCW uh, light heavyweight champion, this was decided. It was a new title. Final. Exactly. Final. Yeah, Brian Pillman beat Richard Morton. And who the crap thought it was a good idea to turn Richard Morton heel? We <laughs> talked about that earlier in the buildup, right. you know. Right, exactly. But, but, but once again, you're talking about two Hall of Fame guys. So right. the, the, the in-ring was great, I thought. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. You notice in this the the whole thing with Brian was about how much of a high flyer he was. Ricky grounded him, and he played yes. for the Heat. He he grounded yes. him. He 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 did did holds, did locks, and all that. So well, what, you don't you don't you don't get over as a babyface for all the years Ricky Morton did without learning what was being done to you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> makes makes sense. Yeah. So so what did the heel do to keep the crowd from seeing what they want wanted? He kept Brian from flying. Yep. He made him Brian Pillman instead of flying Brian Pillman. Exactly. So, but anyway, Brian Pillman won that match. The Halloween Phantom, who Missy Hyatt was trying to find the identity to, he beat Z-Man Tom Zank. And now, of course, we know why Z-Man was the opponent, because the Halloween Phantom, spoiler alert, was Rick Rude. And, Which we've discussed in, in a, a previous episode when we talked about the Dangerous Alliance. Right. And he, Z-Man, Kurt Hennig, and I think there's one other name. That, it's like they all broke in at the same time in the Minneapolis area. So it makes right. sense. Well, that, there's so many guys that actually came from that area, the Robbinsdale, Minnesota area. You had Kurt. You had you had Rick. You had Scott Flash Norton. You had Ivan Koloff, Nikita Koloff. You had uh, the Road Warriors. You had... Just a ton of guys. Just a ton of guys. I think Brady Boone was from up there. Yeah, uh, was Brady Boone, that's the name guy. I was trying to think of, yeah. L- lesser known guy from the mid-carter from the 80s in the territories. All those guys from around there, they all were friends with Kurt, and Kurt's dad just happened to be the biggest star and promoter and trainer in the area, so go figure. Right, right. And it was also fitting that the Halloween Phantom came out to my favorite uh, Johann Sebastian Bach song Tocada and Fug. In D minor, which isn't a Tocada and isn't a Fugue, but I won't get into my music. <laughs> right. But it sounds <laughs> great on a pipe organ. It, it's like, sure it does. You know, and, so. and I think at that point, Turner had control. Uh, or actually, by that point, that song would have been put passed into, into public domain. So that's probably right. another reason they used it. Right. But the enforcers, Arn Anderson and Larry Zbysko, beat the Patriots. Now, was before before oh, we get going on to that, when they finally reveal who the Phantom is, isn't that when Paul Heyman cut that incredible promo we talked about yes. the Dangerous Alliance, where yes. he basically, if he, history, Paul had been removed from off of camera for a while because of some things that were happening behind the scenes, and he did kind of a work shoot promo, which is one of the, I think one of his greatest promos in his career, and that's saying a lot because it's Paul Heyman, and it that was essentially the birth of the Dangerous Alliance, wasn't it? It, it was the start of it, yeah, yeah, because after the Enforcers match, which we'll get to, that that's when. Rick Rude came out, unmasked himself, and he came out with Medusa, and that's the Medusa that just makes my jaw drop. The the Tom and Jerry thing, where Tom's like jaw right. would just like smash through a table. Yeah, that's so we've what, got that's a, what Medusa did to me at, at, so at the age sixteen. This, ladies, yeah, think about this, ladies and gentlemen, mostly the gentlemen. You got a young Terry Boatwright, a a young Missy Hyatt, and a young Medusa all in the same company at the same time. Are you kidding me? 
Wow. Right. <laughs> That's a lot of eye and Lady Blossom or Bosom or whatever you want to call her. That's right. a lot of eye candy. <laughs> That's a lot I, I, of eye I candy. I can't remember if this was before or after they did the bikini contest between Medusa and uh, Missy Hyatt, but anyway. yes, and, and that, that was a, it was after this because by that point Johnny Bad was a full on baby face because he was the host of that if you remember right. Oh, okay, yes, but anyway, the the enforcers Arn Anderson, Larry Zbysko, they beat the Patriots, Firebreaker Chip, and Todd Champion. The title match, the U.S. titles were on the line of Firebreaker. Right, right, the world titles were, and I, I and it was Arn Anderson, I think, hitting. I want to say hitting Chip with the, the spine buster. Whoever it was, it was Anderson pinning with the spine buster. Right. Which is still one of the prettiest moves in the history of wrestling. <laughs> and he does the best version. And that's no knock on Ron Simmons. It just is what it is. <laughs> right. We just talked about the interview with Paul Heyman, a.k.a. Paul E. Dangerously, where he cut that massively awesome heel promo and about how Rick Rude is coming for Sting's U.S. title. We then had the the highlight package we talked about before for Ron Simmons, and if you ever With wanted Coach to see, yeah, how much of a beast Ron Simmons was, and if you ever thought of Ron Simmons as damn, go watch this video. It'll it'll erase right. damn from your mind, and it, to- <laughs> it totally makes him like the, like like the baby face. You want to root for this guy, and exactly. I can't reiterate once again. This is an era when there was not a lot of mainstream celebrities getting involved in pro wrestling. And when they were, it was usually Vince. And it was usually the Bob Eukers, the Billy Martins, the Liberacci's that were fringe or past their prime. This is Bobby Bowden in the middle of his heyday as a coach, coaching teams that are perennially top five college teams. And he's doing a promo for Ron Simmons. That's that's a big deal when you think about it. But Absolutely. Yeah. So that brings us to the main event, WCW World Champion Lex Luger with Harley Race, who somehow seemed to have gotten younger since he lost the title to Rick. I don't, I don't know what Dead. happened. Died <laughs> but, his hair blonde. <laughs> but it it's was Harley a, Race. Is there anything Harley did that was bad? No. <laughs> right. But it was two out of three falls. The first fall was practically a squash match. It's like Ron just ran right over him. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I liked about this, I don't know if it was Dusty or, or, or who, but they had that one-minute rest period in between falls mm-hmm. i love that love yeah. that and you heard dusty talking to ron d- doing the whole inspirational this and that and yeah, you I, got him I, baby and you got harley doing his talk in lex's corner yeah yeah and and lex looking glassy-eyed and such but it's just he, completely because i think it was like a power slam he, he hit him with quickly what it to pin him right right he, he pinned him in like two or three minutes in the first fall i think mm-hmm. but the second fall was an over-the-top rope disqualification because that was the rules in WCW at the time was uh, over-the-top rope was a disqualification. I think it stems from the NWA. It does. It does. Yeah. And and that, I, I remember I remember at the break of that, but after that fall, somehow Ron had hurt his ribs, maybe going over the top and Dusty rubbing his ribs and Ron saying like he's got something in his hand, like trying to sell the idea that the heel would use a foreign object. And Dusty's like, no, he doesn't. Don't worry about it, kid. You got this. It was, it was just, it was for, I know you, we've talked about it a lot off mic. You've mentioned it here on mic. You, Seth, are a big fan of the, the wrestling being presented more sports-like. Right. And right, right. this match between the vignette of Ron, legitimate football background, Jim Ross and his love of college football and him really playing up. Both these guys had legitimate, great college football careers. The whole thing of the in the corner with the corner men, essentially, with Dusty in the baby face and Harley in the heel, it just had more of a sports feel to it, didn't it? Exactly, yeah. And, and it goes back to the Vader-Sting match that I, I 
talk to about drool over. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That it had that sports feel too. Sure, sure. Once again, I think Jim Ross called that one too. So go figure. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that was Jim Ross and Jesse Ventura. So, but yeah, yeah, the the second fall ended with with Luger going over the top rope for DQ and Harley held on to Ron Simmons's tight. So that that was the underhanded victory there. And then right, right. the third fall had Luger pin Simmons with a pile driver, I think, after Ron shoulder blocked the post. You're right. Which I always found. I remember, you know, I was smart in the business. I was collecting tapes and, and getting newsletters, getting the observer at the time. And like I said, even though it was on my mission for my church, I was becoming smart to the business. And I remember there was always Meltzer would talk a lot at this point. They had switched Luger's. There had been a decision made by the creative team, probably also this this tag team, this tug of war we've been talking about the whole time between old school creative versus corporate guys. To they had switched Luger's finisher from the rack to a pole driver, mm-hmm. and trying to explain that Harley had taught it to him because of course Harley used the pole driver for years as his finisher, right? And with I think the idea Kazmaier that started using the torture rack after this. Right, exactly. I think that was part of it, but I think the bigger thing was they just felt like the Paul driver was more of a heel move. Does that make sense? Yes. It was more devastating. And Luger never did a good Paul driver. No. And they he kind of went sideways so much to protect Ron that it it was obvious Ron's head never hit the mat. He right, did not right. do a good job at all. But but to Jim Ross and Tony Schiavone's credit, because they're both incredible announcers, they tried to sell it like he was Paul driving him more on his shoulder, the same shoulder that he had he had missed the shoulder block and hit the ring post with. I mean, it was right. on the outside, if I remember right, not on the inside. He right. kind of got down in a three-point stance when they had gone to the floor, and Lager moved to the last second, and he posted himself. Right. My I- thought, even as a fan back then, was great cover by the announcers, but wouldn't it just make more sense for Lex to just use an sh- old-school shoulder breaker at that point? Yeah, yeah, it would. And now, granted, Lex, I mean, you would know that more. You would know this better than I would. Lex seems like one of those guys. It's like, yeah, you're not going to have a five star match with him, but he seems like he'd be safe to work with. You're not going to wake up with any new pain. Well, Barry Windham would disagree with you. (laughs) (laughs) But Barry, Barry has pointed out any time that Lex, Lex just gashed open early in his career, Barry's forehead. Barry said you could literally stick his, his two fingers inside the gash. It was so so big, right? Anytime Lex hurt a guy, it was because he was kind of klutzy, not because he was because tr- he was dangerous. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah, more kind of a crap happens thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. It was just the way he sold and the way he moved. He didn't really have a good understanding of where he was in the ring sometimes, or his his own size. So it was more like, oh, he, what he did was he actually in his in his attempts to sell, flailed his arms around and just busted, hit Barry right in the forehead with his elbow. Not understanding to sell backwards and then do the arm flail so that you're well out of the way of your opponent. But that's that's a green mistake. So I, I think you're right. And I think that that was probably Lex not feeling comfortable doing the Paul driver and just trying to make sure he didn't hurt Ron. And and it, it's, it goes to what you like to say that Christopher Daniels says all the time. If you can't do a move 10 out of 10 times in training, then don't ever try it in front of a crowd. Exactly. Right. But you understand Lex is in a tough place. He's the top guy that given him the belt, and he's being told by the people that signed the checks, we want you to start using the Paul driver. What are you going to do? Right. Uh, Lex never had a problem expressing his opinion to management about about pay and the pay scale and how all the boys got paid, including himself. I would think that he would have a, he would have he stood up and go, I don't feel comfortable doing that move. It doesn't look good, and I'm going to hurt a guy. 
but for whatever reason, he didn't. And every time I saw him give a pole driver, it never looked very good. And and pole driver, when done right, Jerry Lawler, Paul Orndorff, Harley Race, Haku, it looks amazing. It looks like you're killing a guy. You know what? Right. Right. Undertaker. But if you don't, it's uglier than homemade sin. Yeah. And I would put Minoru Suzuki in that pile driver category as well. I'd also put Don Morocco in that category. But, okay, anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that was the main event. And it's one of those things where, yes, technically the finish was clean, but it made you want to see a rematch because you genuinely thought that Ron could have won that match, especially when you look at it in in the course of it being the first fall, that Ron sure, won that it, first fall in like five minutes. And that, of course, was the reason why, for years, all title matches were best two out of three falls. That's how you – Dusty's old school. He was booking it. That's how you book it because the fans in their minds are going, if this had been a normal one-fall match, Ron's, Ron's a new world champion. Exactly. And then yeah. you have, like you, as you like to point out, giving the out, the fact that, that Harley had interfered and it wasn't a pinfall or a submission. It was a, it was a technicality, a disqualification. It definitely did not hurt Ron any. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. They also gave Ron an out by, by, by hurting himself on the outside. They did all they could to keep Ron strong in this match. And I felt they did because it would be, what, less than a year later he, he beats Vader for the world title? Yeah, I think so. About set, about probably summer, the next summer, so eight, nine months later. Yeah, yeah, it was shortly after Vader beat Sting. I want to say it might have been fall. So, yeah, probably, probably a little under a year, I think, that he was the yeah. world champion. And and I think right. in the end, he could have had some better opponents, but I think it was a good run. Sure, sure. I think, so I, I think when you look at the card overall, I think it was a strong main event. Could have been better, but no offense, Seth. It's Lex Luger. What are you going to do? Uh, Lex Luger's never. Lex Luger's never going to give you the Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels, sixty minute Iron Man. He's just not going to do exactly. It, okay. Right, yeah. Uh, Ron is not either. For, for quite honestly, Ron's not either. That, but that's not what you're watching. Ron Simmons and Lex Luger do. You're watching a Haas fight. A uh, little bit too much enhancement talent match type matches on here to get guys over. But like we said, this is the early days of pay per view. They were kind of figuring it out. Right. Uh, I think I'll, I, I will still pay money. To this day, to watch Bobby Eaton versus Terry Taylor. Are you kidding me? Right, I'll pay money to watch Ricky Morton versus Brian Pillman, if Brian was still with us. It was the Chamber of Horrors, for what it was, was a joke. It was sad. Right. It was a, it was a, a, a great snapshot of why WCW failed. That much right. money in something that didn't really get anybody over and didn't help anybody. It was it was a, it was a comedy of errors, but the finish was as good as you could hope for in something like that. Right, and even uh, now, I know Austin has announced his retirement, and he's probably never going to wrestle again. But I get the feeling if Austin and Dustin were to do a match, it'd be incredible. Yeah, they'd still be able to pull it off. Sure, and and I think what's more important about this this pay per view and this classic wrestling memory is it it kind of shows us it's a great. It's a great look at the transition and where WCW was headed, where the business as a whole, especially pay-per-view, was headed. And the angles that, that came out of this affected the company for the next year. The establishment, the beginning of the, of the establishment of, of the Dangerous Alliance. Larry becoming a, a, a baby, becoming the cruncher. Barry becoming a baby face. Vader being placed in such a prominent thing so when he comes back in full time you buy him as a keeping sting strong as the top baby face all these came out of this pay-per-view so maybe the matches weren't were hit and miss maybe the 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 the, the, the some of the 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 the, the gaga was but mm-hmm. at the end of the day the angles that came out of this and the stories that were either continuing or beginning from this pay-per-view i think really since WCW on a trajectory for the, what, next year, year and a half? 
Something like, yeah. So yeah, yeah. We, we got it. We gave we gave us a couple of really good in ring matches and a great Paul Heyman promo. That's that's a win in my book. Yeah, yeah, and and it eventually led to the Dangerous Alliance and that great year of 1992 that I will defend as far as being a great year for the company, at least as far as in ring work. But that mm-hmm. brings us to the end of our look at Halloween Havoc 1991. We have many more Halloween Havocs for future Halloween episodes. And if you want to let us know what you liked or didn't like about Halloween Havoc, the website is ClassicWrestlingMemories.com. You can respond there on the social media platform of your choosing. We do have Behind the Squared Circle is the Facebook page and TWBP Show on Twitter. And Train, if anybody wants to follow you on social media, where can they find you? You're always available on Twitter at CrazyTrain underscore JB. Also available on Spotify at the same handle. Seth will be linking in the in the show notes uh, the link to my Halloween playlist on Spotify. Halloween time, y'all. Once again, I always press. I always try to get people to listen to it. It's perfect for this time of year. It's gets added to every year. It's over ten hours now. Just put it on, hit hit shuffle, and there's bound to be one or two Halloween songs on there that are going to get you in the, the Halloween spirit. Don't forget to check out Examine the Dead podcast uh, page on Facebook. We are continuing our daily posting of lesser-known horror movies trailers. As we record this, it is the, it is October 11th, so tomorrow I will be putting the 12th one up, and those will run all the way through the 31st. If you haven't seen them yet, go back to day one and work your way up. I might give you some ideas of what to watch. Also on the on the on the on the Facebook page, there is a wonderful share comment that I got from Fangoria's facebook page that gives you a pretty decent list of all the horror themed movies that are available for streaming right now on all the major streaming platforms so that might also be a help too and with that said we're going to shut off the lights here in the geekville radio studios for classic wrestling memories and we'll talk to you folks again soon Classic Wrestling Memories is part of the A1-Wrestling.com podcast family and can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com and at A1-Wrestling.com. The views expressed by the hosts and guests are purely their own and do not reflect the views of A1-Wrestling.com, any of its affiliates, or sponsors. Some media used in ClassicWrestlingMemories.com is the copyright of its respective owners, all rights reserved. Van Hammer. Now that's a name I've not heard in a long time. A long time. And, and that's bad. Why?